Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for being here on a Monday morning at 9 a.m. for this very important and interesting panel that we're going to have, this discussion that we're going to have. And to give you a little sense of um, the reason for this discussion, in February of this year, Graham Wood wrote an article in The Atlantic that was very provocative and evoked a lot of, a range of responses from um, both academics and non-academics uh, around the world, especially in the States. And the underlying question of his article was, is ISIS Islamic? And people had a diff very, a various responses to that question. Was that a le legitimate question? Should um, that question even be asked? What, what assumptions did that question bring with it? And what assumptions did it hide? What, what, what were we missing when we were asking that question? And the strong uh, reaction that it evoked resulted in some really great pieces uh, that academics, including our three panelists here, wrote to contribute to this public and civic debate that happened in the public sphere. And the, their reactions raised questions about religion. What is religion? What is its connection to politics? How should we be thinking about religion when we're thinking about ISIS? And it also raised the question, a really important question, about the role that religious study scholars have in engaging with public discourse. And so um, everyone on this panel, as I mentioned, has written a response to that Gramwood piece or somehow responded to that question of is ISIS Islamic and whether that's a good question or not and what the answer to that question would be. And the Berkeley Center in May had a, uh, a panel that you can find on YouTube addressing this very same question. And we had um, Emma Tomlin organize that panel and Graham Wood was on it, Anvar Iman was on it, I was on it, and um, Jocelyn Cesari were on it. And this, this panel, when we were thinking about the panel at AAR, is sort of a continuation of that conversation. So I bring that to your attention so that you can also watch that. That, that panel discussion is on YouTube. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to ask the same framing questions that were asked on that panel. So this can be a continuation of that conversation. But before we begin, what I'd like to do is uh, ask each of our panelists to, uh, the, just to give you a structure, uh, a sense of the structure of our, of our discussion today, I'm going to ask each of our panelists to speak for 10 minutes in which they discuss the motivation and synapsis of their public writing. So they'll each discuss that for about 10 minutes, and then I will ask them uh, five questions, and there'll be an intra-panel conversation about that. And then we'll open it up to, uh, like, to get your conversation, your questions in to public, like to the discussion of everybody in the room. And that's going to be an hour long. So we'll have plenty of time to have really good conversation. So before I begin, I'm going to just briefly introduce our uh, panelists. Kisha Ali is Associate Professor of Religion at Boston University. John Dogley is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Holy Cross. And Sahara Siddiqui is professor, Associate Professor of Theology at the uh, Georgetown School of Foreign Service in Qatar University. And we're incredibly honored and grateful that they agreed to be on this panel and are here with us today. So thank you very much. All right, good morning, everyone. I was anticipating to go last, and so this is actually nice because maybe I can say something, um, say something useful. Uh, yesterday, there was actually a presentation on uh, the Paris attacks, and so there's been a lot of conversation that's been happening. Um, I weighed into the debate uh, early on after Graham Wood's article, looking at it from uh, the debate from more of a legal perspective, and so I'll get into that in a bit. But what I kind of want to do, uh, just in terms of starting off, is talk about how we've been looking at 
what we call uh, Islamic fundamentalism, Muslim extremism, radical Islam, all of these different terms which are highly problematic in and of themselves. Um, I don't want to go into necessarily deconstructing them here, but I just kind of want to think through how, um, how has the academic study of this been and how has the academic study of this actually uh, affected how we have these discussions then in the public sphere um, and what does it do for individuals that are either reading these academic discussions or then weighing into the public debate and what are we essentially missing in all of this. So, I think all of us know that this is not a new phenomenon that we're dealing with. Um, uh, it's something that has been around for a very long time in, in various religious forms, so it's not necessarily unique to Islam. But the question becomes, I think, is how do we study it? And as scholars of religion, this is one of the most important, most important questions that we have. How do we take these groups, these individuals, these ideologies, and then start to deconstruct them and study them? And in the study of religion, that's come about in a few different ways. So one of the earliest things that we started to see is that models of social scientific theory were applied to these different movements, essentially arguing that if certain political, um, uh, there are certain a political context or certain social context or certain economic context, then that ends up being kind of a hotbed for where radical Islam or Muslim extremism can essentially grow out of. And they posit a causal relationship that if you have authoritarian regimes, if you have political instability, if you have a lack of industrialization, if you have a lack of democracy, if you have uh, um, high levels of unemployment, all of these different factors, then all of a sudden this becomes a place where we can see these types of movements developing. Now, this has been taken up in policy circles in a really problematic way. We see that now what's happening, whether it be the PREVENT program in the UK or whether it be the, the CVE program that's coming out in the US, the assumption is that if we find the same political social conditions somewhere else, then we can find a would-be Muslim fundamentalist terrorist that will come about, right? And this results in a lot of stereotyping of Muslims, um, a lot of fear-mongering, a lot of Islamophobia, because again, the idea being that we can predict who is going to become a fundamentalist on the basis of these certain socio-political economic conditions. Um, the other model that often is adopted in religious study is looking at it through the paradigm of rational actor theory. So these individuals are not religious. Um, ISIS is not composed of a bunch of religious Muslims, but ex-Bathist party members, uh, rebels from, uh, from the Syrian army who deflected, all of these different individuals that are not necessarily uh, uh, subscribing to a, a religious movement, but they're just taking religion as a tool to create a larger political movement. And religion is just very useful. So it gets the most amount of people. It's seen to be authentic. So why should we become um, you know, Marxist extremists or socialist extremists or any other type of extremist? If we become Islamic, Islamic extremists, that would gain the most amount of support. Now, the problem that we end up having, having when we take both of these models is that we try, we're constantly trying to rationalize, right? Why does this exist? But the difficulty being is that the movement itself is always characterized as being irrational. And so scholars are then stuck in this paradox that we have all of these rational actors, but this irrational movement. And then the question becomes, okay, well, maybe if we don't look at it from these methods, let's look at it from the, the, the method of just studying its ideology. And I think that's where the Graham Wood article comes out of trying to say, okay, maybe these social scientific models aren't good, maybe these rational actor models aren't good, so let's actually start to look 
at the ideology. But the problem is, is that when we start to look at it simply from the lens of ideology, then it becomes this black and white discourse of, is it Islamic or is it not Islamic? And I think all of us up here have all criticized the terms of this debate, right? This black and white idea that um, we can simply say something is Islamic or is not Islamic. Um, yesterday's uh, panel, um, I forget the name of the, the person who was on the panel, but she was, she was very um, articulate in saying that part of the difficulty is that there isn't enough religious literacy in terms of how religions basically function, the plurality within religions, the way interpretations work. So simply because we can find historical precedent for uh, an individual uh, lighting themselves on fire or an individual blowing themselves up, which actually we don't have historical precedent for, but simply because because we can locate certain things in the past of a religion, does that give them, does that give that, that same action legitimacy or authenticity? And I think the Gramboard article is essentially saying, yes, we can find historical precedent for certain things, and therefore those things, whenever they appear, are then Islamic. Um, and what I tried to do in the, in the article that I wrote for Jadalia was essentially argue that even if we can find historical precedent for things, right, so within the legal Islamic legal tradition, um, we do have a, a, a large discourse about slavery, a large discourse about when you can go to war, a large discourse about um, even potentially fighting uh, non-combatants if necessary. But what I argue is that there are always principles that govern these discourses that happen in these legal texts. And we have to understand what those principles are. And when we compare those, simply because ISIS has taken from Islamic precedent uh, doesn't necessarily mean that their actions are quote-unquote Islamic. Um, the other thing that I think is important to mention is that when we're looking at his, the history of Islam, when it comes to things such as jihad, when it comes to things such as slavery, it's a very, very messy history. And uh, Keisha, who's an expert on slavery, can of course tell you this. Um, I was just reading this morning a book by Asma Saruddin on jihad. And one of the things um, she really eloquently argues is that early conceptions of jihad were uh, about, um, uh, or sorry, I should say, early interpretations of Quranic verses that are now used for jihad were actually interpreted in a completely different way. They were interpreted as verses telling you not to go to war. Um, in fact, uh, early commentary, uh, commentators used to say that the jihad was only permitted for companions and not committed for anyone after the time of the companion. But discourse developed, right? Uh, there was tons of invasions, there was tons of wars, and even Quranic commentaries changed and developed. And so we have a vast tradition that we're trying to deal with. Um, and within that tradition, you have so many different things that you're trying to weigh. So to reduce the debate to whether something is Islamic or not Islamic is really problematic. Um, the other thing that we have to think about, and this is something that Anwar Amin raised in, um, in his insights on this debate, is who benefits from this? Who benefits from framing the discourse uh, around religion, right? Which governments benefit from it? Which religions benefit from it? Which groups benefit from it? And so I think aside from deconstructing this idea of this dichotomy of Islamic versus non-Islamic, we also have to step back and say who actually created the terms of this debate? Um, and what is it telling us about some of the deeper issues in terms of how we're thinking about religion in the modern world, violence in the modern world, how these different groups are being behaving and acting, and what their objectives are. So those are just uh, some, of, um, some of my thoughts and some of the thoughts that I wrote in uh, the piece on Jadalia, and hopefully we can have a, a, a discussion after this.
It's very odd to hear myself described, actually, as an expert on slavery, um, because I think of myself as someone who works on Islamic law and someone who works on questions of gender and sexuality. I wrote a book with slavery in the title, uh, but the prime focus of the book was marriage, actually, and making an argument about the ways that marriage and slavery were relevant intersecting categories um, that the jurists of the 8th through 10th centuries operated with. Um, my other significant research interest is really in how contemporary Muslims revise, revisit, adopt, and adapt, and refute, and repurpose classical texts in their modern and modernized ways of thinking about issues of gender and sexuality and ethics and law. And that's the place where I have touched on questions about contemporary definitions of slavery. Hence, when the Wood article appeared, hence when uh, the open letter to Baghdadi condemning the Islamic State's actions appeared, hence when the Islamic State published a short pamphlet, Questions and Answers about Captives and Slaves, I looked at those materials as part of a corpus of contemporary Muslim reflections on and contemporary Western reflections on Muslim reflections on questions around gender, sexuality, slavery, and authority. And that, I think, is exactly what Sahir is pointing out and others have as well. Um, the term here is about who gets to decide what's authoritative, who gets to be an authority, who gets to interpret the text. And, and those are, I think, the essential questions that arise. When I wrote about Wood's article and, and these other texts, uh, I did so for a blog on feminism and religion, and the question of authority and the question of how does one narrate the past, how does one retrospectively reconstruct an authoritative Muslim past, uh, how does one appeal to a previous consensus, those were the things that were primarily preoccupying me um, in that blog piece. And again, agreeing with my colleagues, Islamic or un-Islamic is a very ineffective uh, and I think also in some respects dangerous way of framing the debate, uh, first of all because it makes it a question purely of religion and also because it um, effaces all of that labor of interpretation, all of that contestation. So I wrote that in February or March, and there was robust discussion in the comments section, which is a moderated comment section, which is why the discussion was robust and, and thoughtful. Uh, and then in August, I spoke with a New York Times journalist uh, for her piece about ISIS espousing a theology of rape. And we had a lengthy conversation uh, during which we talked about many aspects of the ways in which the Islamic State seeks to ideologically justify slavery, the ways in which taking them at their word that this is purely religious and interpreting this as a religious or, or an irreligious practice rather than thinking about it as rape in wartime or a form of sex trafficking um, really obscures a large part of what's going on, simply the choice of how to frame an approach. Um, but one of the things that I said, uh, and, and the one thing she ultimately ended up quoting, was that a millennium ago, a millennium and a half ago, capture and 
enslavement and rape in wartime wasn't thought of as a specifically religious sort of act. Muslims did take female prisoners. Muslims did sell those female prisoners. Muslims did assume they could use them for sex, and I'm advisedly using the way it was understood in the juridical category rather than the term rape. But this wasn't religiously meaningful particularly, and Muslims weren't the only ones doing these sorts of things. Whereas in the ideology and the propaganda of the Islamic State, this has become a signal feature of Islamic warfare and, of course, an attestation of their own manly warrior virtues and prowess, right? Um, so the journalist quoted me saying that and then gave a significant amount of airspace to a refutation saying, no, 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 but ISIS is making this other argument, echoing things that, that I had also said. And what struck me about the way that appeared in the piece, which didn't misquote me mine, uh, was the imperative to construct this as a debate between two scholars who overlapped a great deal in what they had to say, but one going with the slavery is un-Islamic, or at least slavery is not necessarily Islamic argument, and the other saying, no, no, but look, ISIS is actually rooted in these particular texts. And that sort of attempt to construct a debate on predefined terms rather than pay more attention to what's actually going on um, struck me as problematic. I was approached by the Huffington Post. I agreed to write a piece for them giving more historical context, giving more background, linking to other things that I and other people had written about slavery, talking about um, the, de the internal Muslim debates on these particular questions, but also simply uh, the diversity and variety of slave systems and patterns of enslavement that have been practiced in Muslim societies over 1,300 or 1,400 years. Um, and I ended the piece uh, with a brief reference to the kind of work that that um, the New York Times article, which reveals horrifying, terrible, detestable, condemnable things uh, about the capture and rape of Yazidi women and girls, the kind of work that's doing in contributing to familiar narratives about Muslim barbarity why it is that that's what's appearing on the front page of the New York Times and not other horrifying stories. And I said something briefly about uh, the U.S. military intervention over the course of quite a number of years, um, having partial responsibility for creating the conditions in which the Islamic State could arise. That, that is not generally taken to be a particularly controversial statement, right? Uh, and I also said something about slavery growing out of the idea that some lives matter more than others and that people who've been paying attention in the U.S. context know that that's not a problem unique to the Middle East. It's something we're grappling with here at home and that um, taking the moral high ground so quickly and refusing to self-scrutinize about other sorts of problems is a problem. Um, 
the condemnatory articles that soon appeared bore titles like U.S. Professor, a BU Professor Blames U.S. for ISIS Sex Slavery. The hate mail was tremendous. A lot of it uh, carried the sincere wish that I become an ISIS sex slave. Now, it's gendered, it's sexualized, in addition to being virulently hateful. Um, more recently, within the past week, I don't know how, it's got somewhat, um, somewhat of a second wind, and now I'm getting, article, uh, getting hate mail accusing me of justifying sex slavery. Um, folks, that's not what I do, right? That, that's not what I write, that's not what I say. It, it apparently doesn't really matter. Um, but I want to tell you just one other thing about the Huffington Post piece. So along the way in negotiating about this piece, um, the one thing that I insisted on was, was having a right to think through the title with them, um, given the importance of framing. And so I proposed Islam, Sex, Slavery, and History. And they came back with, the truth about Islam, sex, slavery, and history is more complicated than you think. That's okay. That was okay with me. I'm always going for it. it's more complicated than that. If you ask my students, they ask me a question, and I say, well, it's complicated, right? Um, and so I thought we had it settled. When the piece actually appeared, the truth about Islam and sex slavery history is more complicated than you think. That's not the same thing. That's not the same thing. And there's a whole machinery and a whole apparatus that makes it very difficult to um, intervene in whatever kind of marketing happens um, with journalists. So what I'll say about all of this, and then we'll have a chance to discuss some of this a little more, is that speaking to journalists is absolutely necessary work. It is uh, tremendously important. It's tremendously challenging. And even if it's your own words in the form of a blog post and you're able to negotiate the content, the apparatus that surrounds it for content delivery um, doesn't always respect the sorts of nuanced distinctions and vocabulary choices we in the academy believe are important. One of the nice things about an unmoderated comment section, I, this is my personal theory, is that it acts like a flycatcher and uh, people vent all of their negativity in the comment section and they don't send you emails. So it's something to consider. <laughs> Uh, because if you take a look at the um, comment section on the article that I did in response to Wood, my goodness, it's, you know, it's just literally thousands of comments which, would be, which you would not believe. Uh, I really appreciate uh, some of the insights that my colleagues have uh, provided up until this point. Um, I come at it, uh, or today I'm going to begin by coming at it from a slightly different perspective. Uh, first of all, I, I want to say something a little bit personal. I had spent many years, <coughs> excuse me, I have a bit of a cold. I'd spent many years uh, following questions of Islamophobia and the media portrayal of Islam and similar questions very closely. I spent hours a day on occasion following these things. I became a bit of an expert, but I never wrote about it publicly. Part of the reason for that was I was not tenured yet and Anyone who knows anything about our field knows that there are certain things which you can say and certain things which must remain unsaid by assistant professors 
when it comes to the politics of the Middle East. Uh, and so I basically decided to keep my mouth shut on such questions. <clears throat> and by the time this Wood article had come around shortly before that, I had become so exhausted with this that I had sworn off reading the news uh, for long periods of time at a time. So I would only come back to kind of check in to see what was going on. So I was really wanted to stay away from this arena, you might say, as a scholar. But then this Wood article, which is really, an, I mean, it's better to think of it as an Atlantic article, because if you know anything about the way that these kind of publishing works. I mean, every sentence of that article, you can be sure, was wrestled with and checked and decided upon. So it reflects, in a sense, the editorial line at the highest level at, at a major magazine. And you can see that in the history of the magazine as well. Um, and so when this, when this article, uh, this Wood or this Atlantic article hit, um, I was really, and I'm going to speak quite frankly here, I was really incensed because... Um, number one, it wasn't just a journalist, but there was another academic who was marshaled as a source of authority for saying, essentially, that there is no such, and they didn't use these words, but they, it, it could have been taken from a Robert Spencer or Pamela Geller website and reworded as, there is no such thing as extremist Islam or moderate Islam. There is just Islam. That's really the assertion or the sentiment that is being communicated when you insist on asking this question over and over and over again, is ISIS Islamic? And then actually asserting, as Wood did in the article, ISIS is Islamic, period, very italicized Islamic. Um, and then uh, having support uh, from a prominent academic saying that Muslims like myself, who believe that ISIS, not that we weren't saying that they weren't Muslims, but we were saying that they were bad Muslims. That's a very basic and, I think, sort of uncontroversial distinction to make. We're not saying that these are, we're not saying, well, these are, these are Buddhists. We're saying that, fine, they're Muslims. They're basing themselves on Quranic texts, but they're bad Muslims. They're very bad Muslims. Uh, and being told that this is a cotton candy view of Islam, that we're not being realistic, that it's plainly there in the texts what they're doing is Islamic and, and, and normative. And so I decided to, to, to respond to this, and it somehow, through just various happenstances, it made its way through a thoughtful and I would think, and I think very enlightened editor at the same magazine into the Atlantic itself as a, as a response, and, and, and it generated quite a bit of um, uh, buzz. But I, I think at one level, the way that I view this, these, these kind of questions about the Islamicity or how Islamic is ISIS, is a function not of mistakes in analysis or of failures of reason or of questions of scholarly acumen. I really believe that there's a certain, that some of these writings come from very deep moral and metaphysical commitments that aren't always made explicit and perhaps are not even uh, explicit to the person who's making the assertion. What do I mean by moral and metaphysical commitments? I mean, in a sense, the, the deepest sense of who a person is, what's the nature of reality, what makes a human being a human being, what is the group to which I belong. And from this point of view, I interpret many of these, and, and by the way, it's not just uh, from February. This whole is ISIS Islamic thing has taken on new life again in recent articles that have been come out from people who, by the way, I, I, I'm really upset who should know better in re and just last week in the Washington Post, uh, in, in, in other places, uh, Muslims are being told, listen, Muslims, you know, you can, you can deny that um, ISIS is Islamic all you want, but you're really being naive. You're sort of not facing up to reality and similar kinds of things. So I, I think part of this is a manifestation of, the, of a kind of clash of civilizations narrative 
right? I mean, a lot of people don't want to lay claim to the idea that they're espousing a clash of civilizations. Um, <clears throat> because this is seen as being either illiberal or, or sort of backward or something like that. And so rather than say that there's a clash of civilization, you ask the question, is ISIS Islamic? Now, what's the point of this question? What is this question trying to really get at? What's the worth? Uh, uh, why do we ask these kinds of questions? Why do we frame the language in the way that we do? To me, and I could be wrong on this, and I'm, I'm, I'm open to being challenged, but when I hear the question, is ISIS Islamic? I hear the question underneath that. How dangerous are other Muslims? How dangerous are the rest of Muslims? And beneath that, there's an implication or an assumption, which is essentially that other Muslims are potentially dangerous, and we just have to find out how dangerous. But even deeper than that, there's the implication or the assumption, which is that we aren't dangerous. And who is the we? That's when you get to the metaphysical and moral commitments. That's when you get to the clash of civilizations. In other words, it's worthwhile to have a discussion about how dangerous Muslims are. It's worthwhile to have a discussion about how, let, let's, let's measure how bad Muslims are. But what's left out is that we're not measuring how dangerous we are. The we, the, the, who is the we is the real question there. And so I think it's worthwhile to begin to, talk, to, to think about when you look at these things, not just are people getting their facts straight or are they using the right analytical categories, but what, what is this question? You can say the same thing, by the way, about the use of the word terrorism. Terrorism is not just something people use by mistake. A lot of people felt, felt triumphant because there was a moment when I believe it was Dylan Roof was characterized widely in the media as a terrorist. And everyone thought that this was great. And for, for a brief time it was. But that completely misses the point. The word terrorism as applied exclusively to Muslims, which, which, is, which is by the, now I think everyone acknowledges, it's just commonplace. It's not even a, it's disputed anymore. If a white person does it, he was mentally ill. If a, if a Muslim does it, he was a terrorist. I mean, you, every time something happens, you can, just, you can do a social science experiment in the news. I mean, n nobody even disputes this anymore. But the real reason for this is not because we just make mistakes about the use of the word terror. Suppose everybody started to characterize white people when they commit these atrocities as terrorists. Would that solve the problem? I can assure you it wouldn't. Because we would just find a different word to characterize violence committed by groups other than us. The, 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 the word terrorism is used and similar discourse is used as a way of proving that, that that group, in this case Muslims, are intrinsically dangerous. They're intrinsically potentially dangerous. We are only intrinsically potentially mentally ill. And then by accident we're dangerous. That's what that word, the use of that word is meant to convey. It's at a deeper level. That's my own view. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and I think the same goes for this, is ISIS Islamic or not? I think it's meant to convey a deep psychological desire on the part of people in the establishment, policymakers, people in the media, to preserve a kind of a, a deep, I think just ordinary psychological human need to say that we're all right and you're not all right. The world is organized such that we're the good guys and you're the bad guys. If I can just speak sort of in a very kind of colloquial way. I really think that there's something like that going on at, at, at a deep level. So that's one thing. Um, at, at, a, at the second level, it's just amazing to me. I'm so frustrated by the complete inability of people who call themselves intellectuals to understand the, the, the fundamental point that words are ambiguous and you have to be able to make the terms of your argument 
precise enough, sufficiently precise so that your argument makes sense. And it, it, it seems as though people are incapable of understanding, in the case of the Atlantic article and other, and, and other articles, that in English, in the English language, when you say Islam, it means two separate but related things. There's Islam, the religion, i.e. it belongs in a set with Christianity, Judaism, and so forth. And then there's Islam, the civilization, which belongs in a set with uh, uh, Christendom, India, China. And that's just the way it's used in English. And if you want to make an argument that says, is, Islamic, is ISIS Islamic or not, tell me which of these terms you're talking about. Because in the one sense, you're talking about a normative judgment. And in the other sense, you're talking about a historical reality. Uh, eugenics, which was mainstream science in the United States in the early 20th century. It wasn't a fringe movement. Scientists at Yale, Harvard, were all eugenicists, biologists. And now, if I were to say eugenics is scientific, people would get upset. People would get upset. If I said that the Nazis are Western, is, this, is there any way that you could possibly dispute the, the fact that that's true? But you would immediately know that, wait a minute, professor, you're being ambiguous. You're, yes, they were, they were Western in one sense, but obviously in another sense they weren't. Okay, fine. That's the, that's the, that's the sophistication, the subtlety that we're looking for. And I literally have been for months banging my head against the wall to be able to get some people to acknowledge this distinction. And they don't. Because when you acknowledge this very simple logical distinction, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not you have to accept that I'm a good, just this very simple logical analytical distinction, the entire argument falls apart in many cases. And so there's a kind of a stubborn resilience against understanding that there's a difference between talking about a historical civilization or a tradition, like the tradition of science, uh, and then the normative questions about that, whether something is scientific or not. The Nazis definitely based themselves on science. Nobody can dispute with th that fact. They were a scientific movement. They believed in reason and science, or they claimed to. That's the difference. They claimed to. But normatively, were they scientific? Of course not. Nobody would, would reject that. And we accept that people, have the, that people who are, place themselves in the scientific tradition have the right to say, no, this is not scientific, this is not what we are, and we don't question it. But when it comes to Muslims, when we say, look, no, this is not who we are, we're told, oh, wait a minute, hold on there, you're, you're being naive, or you're being hypocritical, you're not being consistent. And I think that people need to be challenged, and not necessarily challenged, but we need to at least bring to mind that often there's a kind of a deeper emotional, psychological impulse that's being manifested in these analytical categories and these questions that are being posed. And when you, I think when you look at it this way, and by the way, the same thing could be done for lots of other ideas, reform of Islam, terrorism, these kind of things like that. They always express, to my mind, something a little bit deeper that deserves to be brought out. Thank you very much for those excellent uh, framing uh, comments that, that we'll get to explore in greater detail because they've brought up a lot of questions. One of the things that I'm struck by in the comments that um, Keisha has made and John Ayer has made about the, the hate mail, uh, both in the comments and in email after, afterwards, is the emotional labor that goes into you know, making a choice to be publicly, to speak publicly about these issues. And I think that the fact that, um, well, I believe that the fact that, they're, that you're Muslim also influences the kind of the vitriolic response that you get. And I think it's important that, you know, in uh, the Granwood piece, the interview was with Bernard Haeckel, 
And I think, and I do wonder how differences, like the different things about class, uh, the academy, race, all of those things end up influencing the kinds of, uh, the ways that people's messages and voices are heard and the kinds of reactions that people have towards them. So given that, so I, wanna, I want us to think a little bit more about emotional labor and the choice, the costs that come even for speaking out publicly even after tenure. So what role do you think that scholars of religion and the journalists most usefully play in the debate over whether ISIS is Islamic or not? Do you think that they have different roles? And if they do, then what, like, how would you distinguish between these roles? And just to give you a sense, I did share these questions with the panelists before. I'm not springing them on them. <laughs> I would just say very quickly that the role of a journalist, that the, the, the Wood article that, we're, that sort of uh, um, uh, gave rise to all this discussion had the potential to be a very good article in the sense that he could have reported what ISIS believed about itself, what they've been doing, how they described themselves, and so forth. But then it moved on to editorializing about how this is a coherent and learned expression of Islam and so forth and so on. And that's when it went completely off the rails. It could have been just good reporting. That, I think, is the main role of a journalist. Tell me what's happening. Tell me what people believe about themselves. Tell me what you know, other people have said about them and so forth and so on. And make a clear distinction between your editorializing and your reporting to the degree that that's possible. It's not always possible. It's not always crystal clear. But at least make the effort and don't, don't pretend that you're not doing it. That's a start. I think um, one of the things that journalists can do at their most effective is find ways to report, but also synthesize uh, important discussions that are happening within the scholarly world and ideally serve as a bridge between scholarship and popular readership. Um, you know, I published a book on marriage and slavery in early Islam with Harvard University Press five years ago. Um, it got me tenure, uh, and I think it sold about 350 copies, right? Um, you know, it's enough to go out to dinner once at the AAR. Um, it, that's great. It, the book did what it's supposed to do. The people in the academy who need to be reading it are reading it, I hope, um, or at least having it on their shelves. What can journalists do with that? Well, if the journalist talks to me and we can find a way to have a meaningful conversation, then perhaps there's a way to situate that analysis and that perspective meaningfully in a way that makes the connection with contemporary events. The problem, I think, as I said earlier, is when the framework is already wedded to a particular kind of simplistic distinction and, and the academic um, background gets slotted in in a way that obscures more than it reveals. Um, and I, I would simply say about the comment section, the HuffPost piece had an open comment section, and it did not stop me from getting emails addressed, you know, hey, cunt face. You know, shocked gasp. This is what's in my inbox. It's different being female. It is. Thanks for those comments. There's only, I think, a few things that, that I would add. So aside from, I think, uh, thinking about journalists and scholars and the relationship um, between the two, I think the third party that's now 
omnipresent in some ways are policymakers. Um, after I wrote the piece in Jadalia, I was contacted by um, quite a few policymakers to write shorter pieces on think tanks or the website of think tanks. And one of them said, can you um, summarize the legal methodology of ISIS and 250 words? And I responded and said, I can give you an introduction, but I can definitely not do any type of summary in 250 words. And it was a back and forth and a back and forth. And finally, we agreed on still something very short. Um, and I sent it to the individual, and they edited it um, so much so that I got it back, and it said the opposite of what I had argued. And I was looking at it and thinking, is this just me being overly sensitive? And so I showed it to my colleague, and they said, welcome to foreign policy. Um, you might argue one thing, but if you're not careful, um, what you argue very subtly is changed, right? And I think uh, Keisha's um, experience also highlights this. And so I think what's becoming difficult is that it's not just a matter of, of good reporting, but because there are policy makers that are picking up on these things and trying to construct policy around it, the job of the journalist and the job of the scholar all of a sudden becomes all the more complicated. To understand that these pieces have an impact not just on public understandings of religion, but then on foreign policy. Um, and I think that's something important to, to remember. When it comes to this idea of, of criticism, just to echo what, what, what Keisha has been saying, um, the criticism is definitely very, very difficult. So, for example, I, the, the piece I published on Jadalia, I, similar to Keisha, got a lot of hate mail for it. Everything from, um, if you're wearing a scarf, uh, you can't be unbiased, you're just towing the line of the traditionalists, you should get married and have a husband keep you in line. Um, all of these different things coming out in email form. So I think the, you know, when the scholar or the individual puts themselves out there, especially as a woman and as a Muslim woman, all of a sudden it opens you up to a lot of critique. So developing thick skin, I think, ends up being very important. But I think, you know, uh, focusing on the good reporting, making those ties with the journalists that are trying to uh, present accurate information. Just, I think, two days ago, there was an article in the New York Times about women who have escaped ISIS. Um, and these were interviews conducted in Turkey, interviews that I could never do. Um, so I think, you know, what journalists do is very valuable, but at the same time, if those connections are not made um, and it's not kept in the back of our minds that everything that we are saying is getting funneled through to foreign policy people, if we don't understand what's happening there and those connections, then I think oftentimes it can be very problematic. Um, so just to build on that, those comments, how do you, could you, would you mind commenting a little bit about, maybe starting with Sahara, if you, looking at the Gramwood piece that had the potential to be a really great article, um, how, would you, what, what should he have done in terms of his journal, like in terms of that article that might have made it a, like a more sophisticated or useful or less uh, problematic article? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, I think part of the difficulty is that it, Graham Wood's article stepped away from just reporting and started to try to make normative claims about a religion on the basis of one scholarly interpretation. Um, and even uh, the scholar that he quoted later published a piece saying that there are certain elements of what he said that were misquoted. And so it goes back to what John Eyre said about um, what is the role of the journalist? Is the role of the journalist to try to make normative arguments about a religion and what billions of Muslims think? Or is the role of the journalist simply to say, based on my research, based on my reading, based on my interviews, this is what is potentially happening, and 
these are the experts that I'm interviewing to, to give a nuanced take on that. But every single person that he was interviewing was simply supporting the position that he was trying to take. Um, something that I always tell my students, whether they're writing a two-page paper or a 20-page paper, is unless you put the opposing perspective and unless you engage with other individuals that would disagree with your argument, then there's something, there's something wrong there. There's something missing in, in your argument. And so I think that's another thing that was missing in Graham's article, that if he is trying to make this argument, then he should also provide the space for individuals and scholars to make the counter-argument, which he did not do. I would add two things. One, I think um, that can sometimes lapse into the, well, here's one view and here's the opposing view, and it, and it runs the risk of reifying an argument into a binary like the Islamic-un-Islamic binary that, that's not helpful. Um, and I think the, the main criticism I had of that piece, and I think our discussion here isn't meant to be uh, a lot of hate for the piece. I think, among other things, there, there was really useful discussion that it has generated. Um, I know I've lost my train of thought. Ah, the, the static definition of tradition, not so much as historical precedent, as you talked about, but as emerging immediately and directly from texts. And I think that that question of tradition, authority, and contestation is exactly where we as scholars of religion bring a great deal to the conversation. And I recognize that it's very hard to get people not trained as religious studies scholars to think in that way. Um, and and it's, it's difficult to sell a piece to an editor that rather than do something exciting within conventional framing, um, tries to remove that framing entirely. Where is the line between giving voice to and endorsing the views of violent groups, and how do we effectively make that distinction clear? And that's building on some of the conversation that we're having, because often, and this is something that I think, you know, we deal with in the academy a lot, is like, are you doing descriptive work, or are you doing normative work, prescriptive work. I was asked that question when I entered graduate school by one of my professors, uh, just to sort of ascertain what kind of work I was going to do. And it's something that, you know, I think a lot of scholars in Islamic studies do think about. And, and it's something that I've confronted, you know, for example, if I'll read a text about gender in Islam that is very descriptive, even if it's talking about something that is really offensive, uh, you know, I struggle with that myself. And so I want to hear uh, what, you, what our panelists think about that what, where that line is about just explaining what is it that what is it that the, the Quranic text? What are the different ways in which it can be understood, or how are the different ways that the tradition can be understood versus um, endorsing those views? Like, how do you make that distinction? So we can start with John Eric this time. Um, yeah. I mean, this this is a it brings up a kind of a big philosophical question for me, but. Um, I think there's a, a certain degree to which there's a good, healthy conversation that's taking place within the world of journalism, which is this uh, revolt against the notion of the view from nowhere, right? The Church of the Savvy, as as is called by the J. Rosen at NYU, um, which is that you, as a journalist, you you should never make a pretense to being quote unquote objective, but rather you should just be straightforward about where you're coming from and then just do good reporting. Um, at a deeper philosophical level, um, nobody uh, can escape the prescriptive, you might say. Nobody can escape the normative. There's no work that any of us does that's not reflective of some moral or metaphysical commitment that cannot be justified in terms of that work. 
And so to the degree that we can be a bit, that we're honest about it, objectivity always assumes a subjectivity. Objectivity always assumes that, for example, I mean, even if we're saying, well, I just believe in reason. Well, what tells you that reason is good? That's a certain commitment in that. There's a certain commitment to truth. Uh, and so there's always some element of the should, I ought to do this, this is what's right, and this is what's good to do that guides our work. And, and to the degree that we can be honest with ourselves and consistent about that, that can be productive. But we can never, nobody, and not just Muslims or others, can ever get to a, a view from nowhere. Right? We can never be in that place where we're just being quote-unquote objective. Um, we have to understand that we have to be aware of what our commitments are and then, be, uh, and then work within that and be honest about it. That's the best that we can do. And I think what's particularly dangerous when it comes to the study, as a Muslim I'm saying this, when I look at the, 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 those who are criticizing either my religion or people like me, is that they do assume of you from nowhere. In other words, my commitments, my moral commitments, my metaphysical commitments are, on, are allowed to be talked about, they're allowed to be put into the open and scrutinized, but the, meta, the metaphysical commitments of the questioner somehow don't affect their objectivity. That is not an acceptable situation. We, we, have to, we have to move on to this, from this idea that somehow, again in my case, that Muslim beliefs are potentially damaging to your scholarly objectivity, but other kinds of beliefs, not so much. This doesn't work. So I think I'd like to um, propose that we don't either give voice to or endorse, but we explain and we frame and we situate and we contextualize and we connect, right? We make the um, discussions about the Paris attacks and France bombing hospitals in Raqqa. We make that connection, right? What violence is legitimate what violence is even counted as violence? What violence is baseline normal? Who gets to exercise it? Uh, who gets to criticize it? Um, when we talk about anti-Muslim bigotry in this country, it can be very helpful to talk about waves of anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism and anti-Mormonism. Uh, it can be helpful to talk about the ways in which hatred of Muslims and violence toward Muslims and suspicion of Muslims uh, and denigration of Muslims grows out of a kind of white supremacy founded on anti-black racism. That's not the conversation that we're mostly having around Islamophobia. Why not? Um, well, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why not. But if in conversations um, with journalists, with students, with policymakers, and, and journalists um, are probably in the middle with students more likely and policymakers least likely to be willing to think about making these new connections and coming at questions from a new angle, if we're able to shift the ways in which these things are perceived on a map, um, then that's a very helpful contribution, I think. So moving on to the next question, do you believe that it is the responsibility of the scholar of religion or journalist when discussing sensitive topics to ensure 
that their research does no harm, or is this out of their control? And this is something we've been sort of touching upon very lightly uh, in this discussion, but I would like to you know, really think about it. What is the responsibility of the scholar? Like, what's the limits of their responsibility? Um, it's a difficult question. I think um, scholars, journalists, policymakers alike bear a lot of responsibility. Um, the difficulty, of course, being is that once you, once you put your opinions out there, then they're scrutinized in ways that you would have never expected, and that's part of the difficulty. So going back to what Keisha was saying, you know, you can contextualize, you can frame, you can talk about parallels, you can do all of these different things um, that, that can definitely try to mitigate any type of harm that would come from what you're writing, but at the end of the day, uh, what you're writing might offend an individual, might open up a debate that you would never expect. So do I think the scholar should keep in mind all of the different debates that are occurring? Of course, and I think that is the responsibility of a scholar uh, in the same way that it should be the responsibility of journalists and policymakers. But one thing I've seen is once it's out there, you, you can't take it back, and it's going to be taken by individuals, by journalists, policymakers, students, um, in ways that, that are very difficult to control. And so I think that's when you can potentially open up a conversation. So, you know, when there was all of this outrage over the Graham Wood article, then Bernard Heichel responded, right, and said, well, this is what I was trying to say. So I think for an individual, if you step out into the, a public debate, then you also have to be willing to take that debate all the way through, whether it be in a moderated comment section, whether it be um, about responding to other articles. I think uh, continuously engaging in that debate is actually important because if it is raising some type of issue, then to just leave it there and not respond is actually a problem. So I think to the extent that an individual can respond without draining them their time and their emotions getting involved in the debate, then I think that is um, a scholarly responsibility. I guess I just echo what Sahara said about the ways in which uh, research, writing, speaking can have unintended consequences. So uh, about a decade ago, I published a book called Sexual Ethics and Islam, which was meant to um, spark conversations and debates among Muslims, um, in part uh, with the idea of letting go of some conventional apologetic ways of talking about gender and sexuality. Um, in doing so, talking about sometimes controversial elements of the tradition that um, apologetics have tried to suppress and gloss over, um, and inadvertently giving ammunition to people who go to the book and rather than see the progressive feminist argument say, look how bad Islam is, right? Um, and, and at some level it can't be helped. Right? The, the other option is simply not to make those arguments and not to contribute to those debates. Um, obviously, when journalists are talking about individual informants who have you know, relatives in dangerous places and, and all of these, sort, there are other sorts of ethical questions around putting people in harm. That's not the kind of work that I do, so I, I'm really not qualified to answer that particular kind of question. Could I ask you to clarify, what would be an example so, of harm? Um, so, okay, I mean, I think some of the th stuff that Keisha's talking about, um, but also, you know, I mean, along those lines, when I was writing my book, Domestic Violence and the Islamic Tradition, a lot of people discouraged me from that and they said, you know, you're going to be, one person said, you're going to be the reason why they bombed Lebanon. I don't know what, I think that Lebanon was in the hotspot at that point for some reason. And, 
you know, I took that really seriously, and uh, I really grappled with that. And in the introduction of my book, I really thought about, you know, like Islam permitting domestic violence or Muhammad being a wife beater is a favorite homo-Islamophobic line that gets touted all the time at Islamophobic rallies. So it's something that I struggle with. And so, you know, when you when you make a choice to talk about an issue that's controversial uh, that you feel compelled to speak about. What's your responsibility as a scholar to make sure that it's also that it does no harm? Um, I, I, to, to me, it brings up the the, the, that, the the question I was just talking about earlier, which is that um, I think part of it is that uh, we're all doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody, whenever they decide a topic that they're going to research or talk about, they're making some kind of moral decision that it's worthwhile to do. Like this is something we should be doing. This is something that is worthwhile. I mean, scholarly decisions are all about that. You know, this is a good thing that people should know about, even if it's not, we don't usually frame it as a moral question. Like, we should study history. Well, why? I mean, that's a kind of, you know, why, is the, you know, why should we study history? That's a moral question. Um, and, but more specifically, when it comes to um, the, these things, I think, yeah, I, I think there is a moral imperative. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, who, who, who would, uh, for example, if, let's, let's suppose, God forbid, there was a sudden, like, like a radical upsurge in Germany, of, of or in France of anti-Jewish sentiment and things were getting incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And somebody found some kind of new evidence uh, about something uh, that exonerated a particular Nazi or, or, or something like that. As a scholar, you might say, is this really the time to publish this article? Is, is it really the time to publish this article right now? I can maybe wait five years and do it. And to do that is not to be partial or biased. It's just to be a human being because everybody's making these decisions all the time anyway. And so to the degree that you can be honest and straightforward with yourself and with other people about those decisions, I think that's the answer. It's very difficult to, I don't know, to provide a formula because in a sense we're all doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how, how much can the religion scholar focus on getting the model or research right versus the role they play publicly in making sure that people understand the basics? And can research bog down the ladder? And this is something, you know, we talk about... Uh, the, some of the questions, like, for example, is ISIS Islamic, is a question that oversimplifies the deba debate and is really problematic, and it hides particular agendas, and it benefits certain groups of people. Um, but when we're translating academic work into publicly accessible scholarship by writing publicly, there is a certain amount of simplification that does have to happen in order to communicate. So how do you, how do, I mean, since you've, all three of you have written about this very complex topic, how did you navigate that, trying to convey a, com a, com trying to convey a complex picture and contextualizing while, and simplifying a little bit, but not too much? Hyperlinks, right? I mean, it, that's the beauty of a blog is you can actually connect to sources. People don't always read them. Uh, people sometimes misread them, but, but that's one way. The other thing is you decide what's extraneous, right? Always, always, always you can um, parse things out. I mean, they're, they're just, you have to follow one line of argument. But also the the um, the careful qualifier. You don't hedge and nuance every single statement, but you do try to figure out where it's important to give three examples of different things. Again, not the binary. So it's not two examples of different systems, which then become the two examples. But it's it's three and then some. Um, and, and then you don't go into detail because you're simplifying and you have word limits. Um, 
The other thing that I will say, though, is that there's a lot of good, basic, accessible information about Islam. The availability of good, clear, basic information is not the problem, right? The accessibility is fine. We can always use more. But the problem is not that there aren't sources people can go to for basic information about Islam. The point is people are not going to those sources and not always because they don't know about them. Um, the point is people are getting other information in other kinds of ways, marketed in sophisticated ways. I'm going to, you know, I'm a professor. I give book recommendations, right? Christopher Bale terrified how anti-Muslim fringe organizations became mainstream. Princeton University Press, 2015. It's a brilliant book. It's a terrifying book. Uh, the situation is worse in the United States than it was when he went to press with this study. Um, but it gives a really good account of how and why we're in the mess we're in. And no matter how many accessible blog posts I write about Islamic law or about Islam and gender that, that try to find ways of contextualizing, framing, historicizing, explaining, analyzing in straightforward ways, it's not going to be received in a way that's particularly useful or certainly that would justify me choosing to spend 80% of my time doing that public education and, you know, the other 80% of my time teaching and, and the other 80% of my time being a person in the world and 5% and of my time doing research, right? I, I just have something really small to add. Um, I think it's a matter uh, of also picking where you're going to put your work. And so one of the difficulties is editors love to change things. So uh, what happened with Keisha, what happened with my smaller piece. So I think it's a matter of also... Um, picking where you're actually going to have a good relationship with an editor and you can, um, you know, you can have that space to do all of those things Keisha is talking about. So you don't have to do that 250 word thing or that 500 word thing, but you can have the thousand or 2000 words to get into it. Um, the other thing is that I think as, um, you know, as print journalism, unfortunately, is going out of fashion, um, you know, now we have to start thinking about new ways to actually get ideas out there, whether that be shorter radio interviews, whether that be YouTube videos. Um, and I know for, at least for me, that's a very scary idea to do, like, a YouTube video. But I think now more and more people actually do not sit down and read. Um, and that's a scary thought. But I think as individuals that are trying to get out certain ideas that are important, we also have to think about how can we potentially get creative to um, be able to make this knowledge accessible to individuals that aren't going to sit down and go to Jadaliya or go to an academic blog uh, and read about these things, but, you know, just want to get it on NPR or some other quick um, uh, news source. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, there, you have to know your audience. You have to know what audience you're trying to reach. Then you have to decide what it is you want to convince them of in your public writing, and then you have to just execute that as well as you can within the space that they provide you. And, and, as, a, and as scholars, it's very hard to say, well, you have to make point one, point two, point three in this space, and then you're finished. 
because we, you know, we think, well, I can just write 50 footnotes about that later on when we publish books. That's the mode that we're in for the most part. And it takes a certain kind of, uh, you have to just let it go after you send it off and just let it, let it be as, let it be in a sense unnuanced. And, and if you go into it thinking, look, there's, there's an audience that I'm trying to reach and there's maybe two or three or four insights that I want them to walk away with from the piece and then do as much as you can in the space that's allotted to you and then you have to let it go because it's simply never going to be as nuanced as you want it uh, um, as you want it to be and if I could also chime in it's 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 hundred percent true by the way with this naming and editorializing I mean I had the same experience I thought I had a very clever title for my piece which was what other Muslims really want in response to what ISIS wants or, or what what Muslims really want and it actually posted with that title because if you look at the hyperlink that's what's in it the day it was published, I guess some higher up said, no, no, this is too boring. The phony Islam of ISIS. <laughs> and that's the, that was what was put on there. And I knew I had no choice in that matter because I know how these things worked. But, it, I mean, those things happen all the time. And then, you know, you submit something which you think is great and they're just like, you know, can you write more about ISIS? And you're like, no, I want to write about these other sophisticated and nuanced things. And sometimes, you, you, you know, one thing that was hard for me to accept is like, look, this is their megaphone. You know, just because I'm super smart and insightful and I know everything about the world doesn't mean that they have to, to use their megaphone to publish it, right? And so you kind of have to compromise with, you know, a lot. And that's also the name of the game, you might say, compromising with editors. So my last question before we open it up to, um, to the rest of you to ask questions is about moving from speaking to the public by, you know, writing, writing and communicating with the public through social media um, and newspaper articles, and to moving to engaging with government, policymakers, defense, intelligence communities. Sahara touched on that for us for a bit. Um, have you, like, for the rest of you as well, have you engaged with them? How, what's your, like, not necessarily what's your experience been like, but what are the lessons that you would share with us about that experience? Because it's a different kind of packaging, right? When you're talking to a policymaker and you have all this information, how do you? How, how do you go about thinking about translating that in a way that is useful and helpful and um, uh, and is it helps enrich the, con the enrich, enrich the policies somehow? Um, I can start with my failures in the policy world if that if that helps. Um, so I've had a I live in um, in Doha right now, which is um, which is a, a city in Qatar. And um, given my unique position uh, in the Middle East, and then I work at Georgetown's uh, branch campus there uh, in the School of Foreign Service, there are tons and tons of security people always coming through. Uh, one of the largest U.S. Uh, bases is actually in Qatar, and so when they come and they want to ask security questions they come to Georgetown and they say, you know, tell us what the issues are, tell us what we need to do. And usually what ends up happening is there's uh, somebody who does uh, nuclear proliferation, there's somebody that does Gulf politics, there's someone that does, quote unquote, Islamic extremism, and then they bring me in as, you know, this person can tell you about the five pillars and, and, and these little questions if you have them. Um, and actually, it took a lot of time for that position to even be there where sometimes I'm brought into the conversation. And so one thing that um, we have to think about, uh, the, the world of policy is about 
um, reacting oftentimes very quickly to situations that are happening. And it's on the basis of security concerns, not necessarily on the basis of nuanced academic arguments. And so when you're in those meetings and you have 15 minutes to talk to the Australian ambassador about whether they should implement the PREVENT program in Australia just like they did in the UK, that's not the time for you to sit there and, and, and get into all of the footnotes that, that you'd want to. So um, to some extent, you have to do what um, John Eyre was saying, is just have those two to three points that you have to continuously focus on. Um, oftentimes, um, policymakers at the highest level are actually not doing the research. That's the norm. They're getting it fed to them by all sorts of other individuals. And so sometimes the mistake is that we tend to focus, in the, in, at least in the policy world, on the people that are actually making the decisions, but who we should be focusing on are the people that are feeding information to the people who are making the decisions um, and feeding them the right information and the potentially nuanced information that will change their minds about things. But um, those are are, those are some of the, the kind of the key lessons that I've learned. But the difficulty is, at, you know, even getting a spot there. So the only reason um, I get brought in is because I'm sitting at a school of foreign service. If I was sitting somewhere else, I don't think I'd be brought into the conversation in the same way. So it's about being at the right institution, potentially the right department. But then it's also knowing that sometimes it's not the policymakers you should be going after, but it's their researchers uh, and their assistants and uh, the second third, fourth, and fifth in command. So I'll just say, you know, I've talked about public writing a little bit. I've also had over the past couple of semesters uh, a lot more experience teaching this material in the classroom than I normally would. Um, and I would count as one of my successes the fact that the Jordanian student, not Jordanian-American, but Jordanian student, a Sunni student who came to the start of the intro to Islam thinking that ISIS was she because she's a Sunni and ISIS are bad, so clearly they couldn't also be Sunnis, um, has, has had that complicated for her a little bit. Um, and, and I've had actually very good experiences teaching a number of these texts in the classroom and a number of the interpretive pieces in the classroom. I taught Sahira's piece, for instance, um, in my intra-Islam class in the spring. Um, it's going to be a long time till any of the students who were in that class are in the position of being journalists or policymakers. Um, or intelligence analysts, um, although I do expect some of them want to pursue those paths. Um, you know, perhaps in, in some years, this approach will bear fruit. Uh, I have a little, ex I have some experience. Uh, I, I, I've worked with, with, with the governments before. I, I worked for a year uh, with the Jordanians. Uh, I was interfaith affairs advisor back in 2007. And uh, over the years, it's become clear to me that scholars need to make a decision whether they're going to be scholars or whether they're going to be experts. And the two are not the same thing. An expert is someone who uh, is consulted by someone who already knows what they want to do. They already know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And they're looking for a way to articulate their views or for you to help them win. And it's, very, it's really amazing when you get into the, you know, the world of people who are in government and in diplomacy and so forth and so on. Uh, interactions are usually framed in terms of winners and losers. Who won that interaction? Who, who lost it? And so forth and so on. And that's completely different from a scholar. I mean, I don't walk into a lecture hall thinking about who's going to win and lose this lecture. 
It's about promoting understanding and teaching and education and so forth and so on. And there's a real temptation uh, when you're uh, an isolated scholar and you haven't had much interaction with the world and you've been working on your little work here and there. And along comes a policymaker or someone in the media uh, or someone higher up which is going to make your work relevant, quote unquote. And you suddenly become an expert and you suddenly become someone who's telling powerful people and famous people what they should be doing. And it's easy to think that they're listening to you and that you're guiding them. And in some cases that happens, right? Some, in, in, in many cases you do some good or you agree with them. And that's why you become an expert because you actually agree with their policy. But you have to be conscious about it because it's, it's, it's inebriating and delicious when, when, when powerful people come to you, they ask you your opinion and you feel as though your brilliant ideas are now guiding the world in some small respect or in some large respect. And I think that's the fundamental thing that people need to be honest with themselves about. Are you an expert or are you a scholar? You can, expertise is necessary. We need them. But it's very easy, especially when media come calling, they're usually not coming and calling on you to be a scholar. They're calling on you to be an expert because they believe that they know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, what the moral dimensions are to the question. And your job as a very smart person is to articulate this in an elegant and authoritative way. That's the rule rather than the exception. That's one of the great things about blogs and you know, social media. And right? You don't have to go through that filtering process. You can be a scholar instead of being an expert. So those are things I th that's, that I think are important to keep in mind. Thank you so much. So now we're going to open up the floor for questions. When you ask your question, please say your name and the university you're coming from and or your affiliation. And uh, you know, please keep it brief so we can have our panelists speak more. There's a mic right there. Yeah. I'm Dan Sheridan from St. Joseph's College in Maine. I've given a lecture on is uh, is ISIS uh, Islamic? Uh, when I first read the Atlantic ar uh, article, I realized a couple of things. One is consistent with Atlantic editorial policy. It was aimed at the president and his administration, where the president had been saying, again, in a journalistic setting, that uh, ISIS was not Islamic. Why? Because they used violence. Violence is a monopoly of the nation state. And, of course, ISIS was threatening to be a state. Um, so we were free as a nation state to use violence against ISIS. ISIS couldn't be Islamic as no religion could be Islamic by definition. No religion can be a religion if it uses violence because violence is the monopoly of the nation state in contemporary times. And thus that has reformulated the definition of religion, particularly in the United States, but by extension elsewhere. So I was thinking about perhaps commenting on the political context of that article uh, aimed at a political situation vis-a-vis -vis the present administration and its foreign policy. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, it's it's plausible. I mean, that certainly is con are considerations that that come up. Uh, although I couldn't say for sure. Sh I mean, I mean, I would, I would honestly, I would have to think about it whether or not I agree or disagree with the, that, that tying it to that degree. But what what you bring up actually, I think, is interesting. Is this is this notion of states and violence, because I think it also ties into the usage of the word terrorism. And one of the reasons, the chief reason, why over the last few decades, the UN and other similar bodies have been unable to come up with a definition of terrorism that everyone can agree on. Of course, everybody knows terrorism doesn't mean anything. 
right? Any word that has 260 definitions in the scholarly literature doesn't mean anything. And the, and the principal reason is because there's no way analytically to distinguish between uh, if you say this kind of violence is bad, well then that kind of violence is always performed by states as well. So you need to have a concept that's able to distinguish between the violence of state actors and the good guys from non-state actors and the bad guys. And that's one of the reasons why you have this discourse, is because you have to have a way of distinguishing our violence from their violence, even when it's the same exact violence. So that's, that's, that, I think, is an angle on your question for me. Yeah, I don't think I have much to add. It's something that I, I haven't necessarily thought about. But this morning when I woke up, I Googled ISIS um, and clicked on the um, on, on the tab, both the news tab and the web tab. And the Gramboard article is the, the first thing, or the first thing that appeared on the web tab after kind of the news updates. And then in the news tab, I think it was the sixth or seventh. So I think it does have um, uh, an impact in terms of potentially the policy world, the government world, definitely in terms of how um, Islamophobia is rising, but whether it was written with that intention um, is something uh, I definitely have to think um, think more about. Um, and I would just say, you know, if it even if it if it is speaking to the administration, first of all, it's an article in the Atlantic, so everyone it's it's it has a broader audience. And if it is speaking primarily to administration, it's an even more dangerous piece in terms of the answer that it gives. So, and I think that's why it evokes such a strong response from people. Okay, so next question. Yes, it'll be real quick. My name is Nick Mumjian. I'm from uh, Hartford Seminary. So uh, even reading the description of this panel, it says ISIS, ISIL, ISIS. It goes back and forth. So if AAR came to you and said, can you come up with one term that's definitive to describe this group, as you as Islamic scholars but also Muslims, what would it be? Would it be Daesh? Would it be ISIS? I mean, what, what consistent term should be being used in publications and uh, scholarly journals, et cetera? Great question. Um, it's another difficult question. I, um, I, I personally like Daesh just because it's trying to take away legitimacy from, from the movement. Um, it's descriptive. It doesn't have, um, it doesn't have some of the, con the, the connotations of ISIL, ISIS. Um, and so that's the term that, that I like to use. But at the same time, I don't think it's going to be possible to kind of put a, a, uniform, um, uh, a, a uniform standard on what term people, people use. Daesh has, has significant merits, uh, and recently someone published actually a, the strongest case I've seen for using that. Other people, like um, Jessica Stern and John Berger in their book, uh, ISIS, The War on Terror, argue that to avoid the Islamic State um, out of, you know, uh, not wanting to say the name, it makes it sort of like Voldemort, right? Um, I mean, that's not actually the analogy that they use in the text, but they talk about how, you know, it, it presumes that they're sort of super special and we have to treat the name very carefully because saying it creates a kind of legitimacy. I mean, we don't say, we don't refuse to talk about the Aryan nation because we're worried that that somehow uh, helps with their state building. Um, of course, the other problem is that, that when you say the Islamic State or Islamic State, then there's also potential confusion, right, with the, the idea of an Islamic State, which other people who aren't ISIL or Daesh talk about. Hi, um, I'm Simi Ghazi from University of British Columbia, so thank you for um, all the kinds of reframing that you provided. They were really useful, and I'm 
immediately thinking about going home and speaking to my 15-year-old, um, who has to answer a lot of a lot of questions about these things, um, and is generally unprepared to do so. I mean, we feel unprepared. So, um, so I was sitting in this room yesterday uh, when we were on, honoring uh, Ziba Mir Husseini. And um, I thought that Musawa and the work that was being done there was an extraordinary example of um, academics being able to reach out and do something, um, touch other people, touch other lives, and create their own framing um, through their publication and not through blogs or editors who are outside. Um, and I'm, you know, the emotional labor uh, of this is not just affecting us as academics, it's affecting us as mothers, it's affecting us as people in our communities. Um, and it just seems to me like my social media are overwhelmed by the same kind of recycled desperate arguments. Um, Muslims being drawn into the binary of Islamic un-Islamic by way of defense because that's the only framing they have and they're feeling uh, the onslaught. And not just Muslims, but allies of Muslims as well. So I'm wondering whether there's not a wonderful opportunity um, for people like you to put together something that could be a resource uh, that might be useful for all the way from like really smart high school students all the way through into a broader community where you could frame the issues that are important. You could make these distinctions and there could be a vocabulary available um, for us to, to offer people um, to uh, talk about this, so uh, and whether that would avoid some of the problems you're talking about. You know, Keisha correctly mentioned that there's a lot of good books available and accessible on Islam, and sadly, there's also quite a lot of good material in this area that is there. So, you know, when you think of like the Bridge Initiative, which just came out as kind of a resource that Georgetown University, that uh, John Esposito and others put together. Um, I could even plug this really wonderful website called Loon Watch uh, and, and other similar resources. There's a lot, in other words, a lot of people have framed up these issues very well, and, and especially on social media, there are certain people, when you follow certain accounts, like, um, you know, in the case of Israel Palestine, uh, Ali Abu Nima, who you don't have to agree with on his prescriptions for policy, is really expert at turning the tables on people and on bigots, for example. And there are all sorts of people who do this very well, and the Black Lives Matter movement does it very well. Uh, and, and others are able to do it. So there are examples that are out there. Um, and the reason I, I'm saying this first is that it's not, we shouldn't think as Muslims that the question is that we have failed to frame the, our positions correctly. In some cases that's true. But, in other, but from another respect, we have to acknowledge that part of the reason this, ha this happens, and it keeps happening, and just when we think that we're making progress, something happens again, is really about power. It's really about the fact that in the United States, if we restrict our view to the United States, Muslims do not wield a lot of clout, economic clout, political clout, cultural clout. And when it comes to making editorial decisions or media decisions, who are the producers, who are the people, who are the, who are the owners that are making these decisions about what's going to be in the public sphere? By and large, it's not Muslims, right? And so until and unless Muslims in the United States move into the establishment, you might say, in the same way that Catholics at one point moved into the establishment, Jews moved into the establishment. Once Muslims become a part of the American establishment in that respect, many of these problems will just disappear. Not because the bigotry has disappeared, not because the uh, framing has gotten any better, but simply as a function of power. Uh, that's not the whole uh, aspect, but I think it's part of it. And we can, in a sense, we have to acknowledge that we're weak. 
from a certain point of view, politically speaking, in terms of our clout, and that it's not all our fault. Oh, we failed to tell people about ourselves. That's true. In some cases, we definitely have done that. We have a responsibility to do so. But from another point of view, it's, a, it's what you would expect to happen given the political arrangement. I'd say two things. Um, one is that this is not only an issue for Muslims as a group, but also scholars of Islam um, are not having, whether Muslim or not, are not having uh, great success in making their voices a significant part of dominant conversations. In case you failed to write it down last time, Christopher Bale terrified how anti-Muslim fringe organizations became mainstream. Really, I'd like to see a spike in the Amazon rating for that book um, in the next 24 hours. Uh, the other thing I would say is that there have been actually a couple of good books aimed at straightforward audiences, not actually around the issue of Muslim extremism or the Islamic State or Islamophobia, uh, but one on Black Lives Matter and another um, called Understanding Mass Incarceration, which of course connects to Black Lives Matter. And both of these are pitched in a way that a really smart high school senior could get it, but that they would be useful absolutely through college and as primers for members of the general public. Um, and, and I could see the utility of a book like that when I find another 80% of my time. Um, I, I still won't write it, actually. But, but somebody could or should. And also, Imminent Frame had a number of good articles uh, that they compiled as well. So I just want to mention that. Aisha? Aisha Hidayat University of San Francisco. My question has to something to do with the normativity issues that were coming up early on. <clears throat> so when I talk about these issues, I, of course, raise all of the issues that you're talking about, the contestation of authority, the discursive nature of the Islamic tradition. Now, my question is, how do you see that set of nuances really helping us to get out of the kind of the binary of Islamic versus non-Islamic, that normativity binary. Because when I do this in my classes, uh, students read this as a claim to interpretive relativism. Mm. And so what ISIS, what ISIS is just becomes one option on a menu of choices for how interpretive authority contestation can play themselves out. So the discussion that I do with nuance then backfires because then the violence of Islam becomes its very relativism. So my question for you is, how do you engage these nuances without then cycling right back into the binary, if you have any ideas? Right, so it's possible, I think, when the class goes well, to talk about the interpretive tradition and the Islamic State is right there in the interpretive tradition interpreting, right? Uh, we historicize, we contextualize. I think there are a couple of moves that can be made. One is to talk about where the weight of the tradition has historically fallen, but I don't think that's a decisive argument precisely because many of the things that I would like to see happen among Muslims are historically quite uh, distant from the the weight of the tradition if we're talking in terms of preponderance, right? Um, but I do think it's possible to talk about ethical values 
and say there are moral judgments we can make about the goodness or badness of particular actions that don't necessarily lie along the same lines as Islamic, un-Islamic. If you get what I'm saying, I think the, the question of whether or not something is Islamic has become code word for, among Muslims very often, whether it's good or acceptable behavior. Um, in talking about is ISIS Islamic, uh, if we're talking about do they have a place within the Muslim tradition in terms of studying them and talking about them and analyzing them, fine. Do they have a claim to be good human beings doing ethically and morally admirable actions? Absolutely not. And so that, I think, becomes a different kind of conversation. What's the relationship between what's morally good, what's morally ethical, and, and the mechanisms by which Muslim thinkers have historically decided that, and the question of the text and the tradition? That's also a conversation, I think, that can happen in the classroom, but I don't think it leads you necessarily to the same binary. Yeah, this was something that I brought up um, when I responded to this whole, is ISIS Islamic or not? Because you're right, there's a danger in, well, you say this, but they say this, and they say the Quran says this, and they say the Quran says this, and really, who can know anyway? Um, but that's really not the case. I mean, we, we usually don't accept this. This was a major point that a lot of people missed when I, in, in the original piece that I did, was that no one ever accepts this idea that, for, I mean, the, 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 what you're saying took the form in the Wood article of Islam is what Muslims do. This was the claim, which sort of sounds uh, objective, like it, it's detached. The problem is, of course, you have to first decide who's, who a Muslim is, and that's where your normative judgment comes in. So you can't escape it. You're always making some kind of judgment about who gets to be included in and who gets to be excluded. But I think even in a more straightforward sense, um, there are objective criteria by which, in the case of an interpretive tradition like Islam, one can make judgments that are not simply, well, he said this and they said this. Um, you know, if someone came along and said, well, you know, Islam is allows of polytheism because the Quran is always talking about we, you know, God is always saying we did this and we did this. But of course, no one would accept that because it doesn't cohere and it doesn't make sense in terms of the larger tradition. So one parameter that, that can be brought up is, look, someone makes a claim. Does this claim take into account all of the relevant kinds of evidence and does it explicitly and articulate its position in light of the other relevant evidence or does it cherry pick? That, I think, is not a relative category. This is something you can pin on somebody. So, so in one, I forgot who did it, whether it was Andrew March or it was in, it was in one of those Brookings series. Somebody said, um, wrote, I'm trying to remember the phrasing. It said, um, it's, it's an interpretation, albeit selective reading. But if you really think about that phrase, the idea of a selective reading is by definition a distortion of the text and is not as, val and is not as reliable and as truthful as one which is not selective. Because selective is implying that someone's coming at the text with the intention of distorting it. That's something that can be seen and recognized objectively as being worse than someone who approaches the text with a spirit of saying, I'm going to take into account all of the relevant evidence. So that's, for example, just one small parameter by which you can say, well, look, Let's judge the claims that are being made here. Do these people take into account all of the relevant evidence? Are they trying to be systematic and non-arbitrary or not? And there's other, also other criteria by which that can be done. But 
I mean, in a sense, the, the first answer is, look, nobody accepts that everything is just arbitrary within a tradition. Everyone accepts that there's rational criteria. But in the case of Islam, for some reason, we allow the possibility that anybody who wants to say anything that they want about the Quran is somehow legitimate and should be listened to, especially if they're violent. Right? If you're a Sufi and you go to a meeting and a conference and you say, well, you know, and you give your answer about what you're, how we should deal with a particular question, inevitably, somebody comes along and says, well, that, that's, that sounds really nice, that's really pretty. But like, what about what real Muslims think? I mean, this always betrays the bias of the person who's coming at it. And so sometimes it's just attacking that bias that's one way of going at it. So it's just something that I really struggle with as well, actually, is like, so how do you, how, how do you just not slip into relativism? And one thing that I try to do, and I don't know if it's effective or not, I mean, I think it's a little bit more effective than just leaving it at the relativism point, is to connect it to the conversation we were having about subjectivity, as you just did as well. So thinking about the subjectivity of the reader and the listener and, um, and, and the power that is involved in deciding who is authentic and that, that that person who is from the, looking from the outside that might feel like they are without a subjectivity and that they are some sort of like, in a, that they are in a political and social vacuum that's getting to decide, oh, ISIS is being really authentic but Sufis are not, is, is, is in a position of power and is making claims about Islamic authenticity as well. So, yeah. Yeah, so the only thing I was going to add to that is I think oftentimes we, we look at Islamic law, and this is something my students struggle with, is that we look at the plurality of Islamic law and we read it as relativism, that anybody can come in and say anything and everybody is equally right. And I think there is a distinction that we have to make between plurality and relativism. So when the plurality is present within the Islamic legal tradition, it's still on the basis of a certain methodology. It's still on the basis of certain terms of agreement agreement with which the, the jurors have agreed on. Um, and I think those terms of engagement are important to understand. Um, I also think that what Keisha was saying is that the good is not necessarily an afterthought. It is a thought that's constantly present. Now, we might think of something later that jurists agreed upon as no longer being good or no longer being ethical, and that is where the difficulty comes in terms of, okay, well, now how do we change how do we change this tradition? Um, and I think we have to understand that change also within a tradition doesn't necessarily signal relativism. That's how traditions function. So there's a lot of work now done on, whether it be by Talal Asad or be it by McIntyre, the idea that uh, an Islamic tradition or any religious tradition is constantly in, uh, evolving. And so what I try to impress upon my students is that the plurality of the tradition is there precisely because of the understanding that traditions must evolve. Um, and we as scholars and as students have to understand what are these terms of engagement and how can we engage with the texts um, on the basis of, of these terms such that what comes out of it is not just relative but actually out of a, a methodology um, that can be replicated and that can be engaged with. Yeah, yeah. I just also, I think, um, want to both appreciate and, and maybe argue a little bit with what my co-panelists are, are proposing as an answer to this question, because I think both of these require, in a certain sense, arguing from within a kind of mainstream normative Sunni tradition. Um, and, and I think that that can be profoundly problematic um, in certain kinds of ways. I mean, sitting in a classroom where students are not necessarily Muslim, or if they're Muslim, they're not necessarily Sunni, um, and saying, well, you know, let's look at the legal tradition and how it does these things, and, and let's sort of 
appreciate that, that's one thing, and understand how it works, that's something else, but then assume that we have to play by its rules is is a little more difficult for, for me to accept. Um, and, and so how to balance all of those ways of talking about tradition with other ways of talking about ethical valuation, I think, is... Um, is an ongoing conversation that, that's not exhausted by these possibilities. Could I, could I just respond to that? I, 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 I didn't want to give the impression that um, I was saying that it's only within the, within the structure or the framework of Islam or Sunni Islam or traditional Sunni Islam that one can answer these questions, but rather that um, we shouldn't think that there's not an objective uh, kind of set of questions that we can ask that, that will save us from well, this Christian says this, and this Christian says this, and this Christian says, how can I know what the truth is? Because no one would say, like in our environment, if somebody says, well, Jesus said, I bring not peace but a sword. I mean, everybody would immediately know, like, well, yeah, you can say that, and that, that justifies violence, but because of our knowledge of the tradition as a whole, or, well, Jesus said that you have to hate your mother and father, didn't he? So I hate my parents. I mean, nobody would accept this as just being another view which we have to accept as equally legitimate, not because of habit, but because we acknowledge that objectively, it's just, uh, there's, there's questions of consistency, coherence, intelligibility that we always allow ourselves to use to judge any tradition, including our own. Uh, and then when we simply, you know, throw up our hands, I think in my view, in a lot of cases, this is just a pretense because you want to smuggle in your view that actually Islam is actually like this. And so let's cover it up with the view that, well, Islam is just what Muslims do. Well, I think I think in some cases that's not genuine. Okay. I uh, feel unfortunate standing here because I'm forgetting all the things you're saying that I've been typing down when I was sitting in the back with my computer. So I'll mm -hmm. try to remember what you said while I've stood here. I'm Ernie Bercy from Adventist University of Health Sciences, and I just had a proposal. It's a kind of a simplistic one. Uh, I'd like to see an article uh, written by maybe the three or four of you. Uh, based on your categorization, uh, John, I think it's, uh, that it's not about whether ISIL is, are, are Muslims or not, but that they're not good Muslims. I think it'd be interesting to have an article on why the members of ISIL is not good Islam. Just uh, maybe four or three or four people offering their own perspective, not arguing the, the point whether they are or aren't, but, but why you see them as bad. And then when I Google uh, bad Muslim, I don't get... Islam is bad, like I did just a few moments ago when I Googled that all the way down. <laughs> just a suggestion. I think it, could, it, it has the potential of at least getting into the public wet square in a way that some others might not. Google the two words, Muslims condemn. And uh, I think you'll find a lot of such articles that have been written uh, on, on that topic. I mean, it's, it's, it's really an endless literature. Uh, so it's just a question of looking, I would say. Yeah, and, and Google rankings are unfortunately not something we control. Um, that, that would make life actually a lot simpler if we could decide what showed up first. But Wikipedia, edit Wikipedia pages. That is where people go. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Monk, and I teach a New Testament at Biblical Theological Seminary, and I just finished my uh, PhD in a hermeneutics program. So... I was gratified to hear some measure of unity from amongst all of you, if I'm hearing it 
rightly, that there's a sort of ethics of authorial intention that's at stake here that we're talking about in terms of speech act theory there's a there's a difference between intention and how people are affected by what you say illocution and perlocution and it seems like you're john advocating for rational controls in the way that we do c communication and discourse in the public sphere if i think but you mentioned um, the clash of civilizations. And so I think we're in the West, we have a significant, in the way that we think, we, we separate sort of church and state, and we try to keep those spheres as distinct as we can. But doesn't the sort of, so coming back to the question of authority and um, the differences when it comes to um, how we think about the relationship of politics and religion, and um, how, how does that sort of clash of civilizations, um, how, sh how can we be illuminated? Uh, I, I was wondering if you could just elaborate more on that, since this is there is a question of authority when it comes to the whole um, appeal for rational controls and how we put those in place. Uh, it's John Nair, by the way, but uh, that's all right. Uh, it's not, I wouldn't frame it as rational control, but just logic. You know, I think, I don't think in the academy in general, if I can just speak as an educator, we have failed our students just at the level of logical thinking. People in general, intellectuals in the public sphere, and uh, and by extension, journalists, and now the, 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 the kids that we're teaching, are very illogical often in their thinking, and they cannot follow an argument to its conclusion and, and, and spot problems with it. They don't know how to spot a fallacy. And um, I'm not calling for any kind of, you might say, control or disciplining of a discourse uh, by someone who has authority over those who don't. What I'm saying is that in those cases where you have constructed an argument that has a clear flaw in it, and I can expose that flaw, if you're an intellectual, if you're writing, and if you're making an argument, you have entered the sphere where you are responsible and answerable for the arguments that you're presenting. So if I've made a strong case against you that your argument is premised on terms which are irredeemably ambiguous to the point where your argument simply is not an argument anymore, you have to respond to this. And if you respond to it with more assertions, and then with more assertions and then, you know, attacks ad hominem and so forth and so on, then, uh, you know, I think this is a major problem. It's not a question of authority. It's a question of logic. I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, calling somebody out on a fallacy of equivocation, for example, using Islam in one way in one sentence, using Islam in another way in another sentence, and putting that argument together in such a way that makes your point without alerting the reader that you're using this word ambiguously has nothing to do with authority. It has nothing to do with control or who gets to speak for what. It has to, that, that, I think, if there's anything that human beings can, be, can share in common, you might say, that doesn't have to do with authority, it's reasoning. It's logic. And it's astounding to me in my, you know, in, in my relations with people in this, in this area just how resistant they are to examining their own argument in a very objective way and a kind of uh, at, at the level of, you know, what does this mean? Because it exposes them. 
I mean, really, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not speaking just from you know, theoretically. This hap- has happened to me over and over again. And as far as the clash of civilizations, you know, there, there has to be a distinction between those who want a clash of civilizations, those who think that there's a clash of civilizations going on, uh, and, and those who want to do something about a clash of civilizations and, or who want to save us from a clash of civilizations. There's a kind of ambiguity there as well. The problem uh, is not people who think that there's a clash of civilizations going on. It's the people who want it to happen and who are promoting it and then in some cases fooling themselves and thinking that they're not doing it. It manifests not as people who are saying we have to destroy Islam, we have to, we are the great, you know, because now, you know, that's passé. You, you can't say we're, we're going to bring the light to the, you know, to the benighted natives or something like that. You can't say that anymore. So now you have to have very kind of, you know, furrowed brow conversations about how can we help, you know, Muslim women? How can we reform Islam? And so forth and so on. These kinds of questions come, yeah, promote democracy and so forth and so on. You know, so now it's taken that form. But there are people who believe that we are the good and that the other people are not the good. You know, that to me is a very deep manifestation of this idea of the clash of civilizations. I mean, some people are talking in the language of the clash and other people are walking the walk without talking the talk. I might just add that the idea that somehow in the West or in Christianity, church and state are separate and among Muslims, religion and politics are inseparably intertwined. Um, Well, let's just say it's an oversimplification. Definitely. Um, Certainly, if we think about, for instance, those European nations like Great Britain, where the monarch and the church are formally connected, and say secular Ba'athist regimes like in Iraq, where those realms are, are not connected. I think repeating the idea of, well, there's church and state separation on the one hand, and there's this intertwining in Islam on the other hand, grows out of and does the work of reinforcing this idea of clash of civilizations. And so, and historically, simply doesn't hold water. Um, both things have been true in lots of nuanced and varied ways within both sets of civilizations at various points in history and in time. And um, people have written a lot about it. Thank you for the wonderful panel. Roberta Sabbath, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Another binary is the medieval versus modernity. Can you tell us a little bit about what that subtext really is in the international polemical world as well as perhaps the obvious popular cultural world and how that's feeding into this simplistic thinking. Thank you very much. What comes to mind immediately, because that's such a big question, is that, um, again, at the, deep, at the level of the deep psyche in the West, one aspect of things which I think is not often acknowledged or talked about as much as it really should be is that very often when people are upset about Islam and they call Islam medieval and they are, you know, there's a dimension of, of that where the West, it's not really an argument with Islam, but there's also a sense in which people are haunted by their own past, and uh, in a sense that Islam represents everything that we as modern Westerners or with the West or the liberal tradition or the Enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, rebelled against 
in the uh, in the Renaissance and so-called scientific revolution and everything that came after that. So there's a degree to which this viable or what seems to be viable appearance of a past that we have desperately tried to flee from, that freaks people out to a certain degree, right? And there's a, there's a way in which it's a kind of an argument. And Islam has always been used as a kind of a foil in that sense. I mean, if you look at the history, writers have always used Islam and said, my God, you know, you Catholics are worse than Muslims. Oh, no, you Protestants are worse than Muslims. And, you know, Tolstoy using Islam as a foil and, uh, you know... Uh, uh, you know, practically every European writer of note that you can think of has used Islam as a way to club his own opponent for being backwards or having some kind of wrong opinion in some form. Um, and so th that's an element of things that I think is important. And so when people talk about medieval, I mean, the, the concept of medieval has no meaning in the Islamic, in my view, for, to, to, to make judgments about Islamic history. What, what is medieval in Islamic tradition? Personally, I like to, I mean, I follow Sayyid Hussein Nasser, and I, I think of traditional versus modern as reflective of a certain worldview, a certain vision of reality that is fundamentally and philosophically different between a traditional worldview and a modern worldview. So not so much a historical linear difference, but more of a, of a difference in uh, one's fundamental worldview and philosophy because there are traditional people today. Nobody would talk about there being medieval people today except in the most abusive sense. But in a sense, there are many traditional Muslims who you wouldn't call medieval. I mean, in that sense, I guess I'm medieval, but I mean, I don't think that's a nice thing to say usually. In some senses, it would be like music, but anyway. Um, yeah, just to, to add a few things, I think when we talk about this divide between the, the medieval and modern world, um, there's definitely this idea that one is rational and enlightened and the other one's still in the dark ages and irrational. One is civilized and one is barbaric and one is um, you know, good and definitely one is bad. And I think that type of discourse has morphed into the good Muslim bad versus bad Muslim, but also the Muslims need saving, right? So this idea that we have to enlighten Muslims and take them out of this backwards, violent, um, religious, um, overly textual world and bring them into an enlightened civilization. And I think that's oftentimes the, the undertone also of Islamophobia that we're starting to see now. And so I think part of it is just trying to understand, um, just trying to understand history really better. And I think we also have to to um, note that a lot of the reactions that we're seeing in the Muslim world against the West are actually because of this judgment that's being placed on the Muslim world about exhibiting irrational, religious, um, medieval ideas. And so both in terms of what it, the power that underlies this type of dichotomy and then also what, what uh, these types of understandings then create in civil society and in, in, um, in the international world I think is important. Thank you very much. Uh, well, one thing that I would also say about medieval and modern is that it has it's a, it, those signifiers mean different things to different people. As someone who works in the field of religious feminism and Islamic feminism in particular, often the critique I get from Muslims is that in, in, in their critique, they construct medieval as pure and pristine and perfect, and they construct um, modern as polluted and tainted and a, a corrupting influence. So it depends on the, con we have to always think about the context in which these conversations happen and the kinds of uh, meanings that these words take. My name is Mariam Sharif. I'm at Brandeis University. I have uh, a very simple question. Um, are Muslims using the term Islamic and non-Muslims using the term Islamic as different definitions? 
and how do we define, or how about how do you define, Islamic? And I want you to answer it in the context of uh, if you were on a radio show and being interviewed and had um, a 30-second soundbite. Um, <laughs> because, because that's like real life, right? <laughs> and um, Dr. Ali, the two, excuse me, the two books that you mentioned, um, uh, the Black Lives Matters book and the Incarcerated book, if you could just tell us the names of those. I'm going to answer the easy question and leave the hard one to my colleagues. I believe the first is simply called Black Lives Matter, and the second is Understanding Mass Incarceration, and they were both published within the last six months. Uh, okay. I would say, and I'm kidding. Uh, you know, you could always uh, pose it as a counterexample. I mean, I think it's uh, people in, understand these distinctions intuitively. So if, if, if you say to some uh, radio caller, When's, when's the last time you heard someone say that bigotry is un-American or this and that is un-American? Uh, people understand immediately what that means. And they don't think it means, well, you know, bigots don't have American passports. All American passport holders are enlightened, uh, you know, people without any a racial bone in their body. They understand that adjectives like American can both have a, a factual and a normative quality to them. So, and, and so can Islamic. And so that, that would be a quick answer, is, is the sense that, you know, you can have, unlike the word Christian, which refers both to the religion and, uh, I'm sorry, um, unlike Christendom and Christianity, which allows you to separate between those two things, in, in English you only have Islam and Islam, and so there are problems that arise. But that's only at the first level of approximation, by the way. I don't mean to imply that by making this distinction that somehow all problems have been solved. But that's just the most, I mean, the most basic distinction you have to begin by making. Then when you actually get deeper into it on the normative side, um, we've had the unfortunate um, uh, habit that a lot of Muslims have now acquired where when they want to refer to something as being either, as Keisha was mentioning earlier, as good or bad or allowed or not allowed or something that we should do. So all of the categories that classical Islamic civilization has come up with like haram and halal and wajib and mandub and makruh and all, there's, there's a whole galaxy of virtues whether something is upright, just, compassionate, kind and so forth and so on which if you, if you look at the classical literature is there. These are all mashed together into the word Islamic. Is that clothing Islamic or not? This goes against Islam. This is un-Islamic. This is Islamic. And there's like one adjective that's used to describe an entire spectrum of, of things. And that, that itself always leads to ambiguity. And, I should add, is usually, not usually, but, but, but sometimes wielded by people who are trying to imply an authority that they can sort of say onto somebody, well, you know, what you're doing is un-Islamic. Because if a person doesn't know, then they have no response. But if a person says what you're doing is unjust, then they can respond in kind and they can actually make a judgment about it. And so one thing that Muslims I'm here and I'm speaking about need to do is to recapture their vocabulary of, of normative words, of making judgments about things that go beyond just saying Islamic and un-Islamic or against Islam or it's, that's part of Islam or something like that. It's, it's very sort of, uh, we have to mature, I would say, from that point of view. And um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I can give a 30-second definition, but um, I don't think any of us can, so uh, I don't feel too bad. I think the difficulty with Islamic is we think about it in black and white terms, and I just don't think that is possible. I think what it is, what is considered Islamic at 
one time by one individual in one context is then not going to be Islamic by another individual in another context based on another interpretation. So I think it goes back to the idea of, um, you know, why are we using these terms and what uh, what is at play that's larger than the text and the individual? Um, what are the ethics that are at play? Um, what is the Islamic notion of justice? Um, all of these different kind of meta conversations, I think, are important. Um, and I think what it allows us to do is to, to take that argument and to say that we can't just an impo impose a black and white understanding of what is Islamic. Usually what ends up happening is now if we can find it in the Islamic tradition somewhere, then it is, it's, it's Islamic. But if it's modern, right, going back to what Aisha was saying, then it's not Islamic, right? And that is really problematic. And so I think we have to start actually as Muslims not using that term as much and start thinking about bigger questions that we can ask about ethics and morality that can potentially take us in more productive directions as opposed to just saying something is Islamic or not. So if I was asked that question on a radio, I think I would try to answer it. <laughs> and I would say that it's, yeah, it's like justice. In my mind, it's like what is just and what is ethical, knowing that those things are all of the things that have just been said, that they're, they change all the time, they mean different things to different people. And I would just say that, you know, I think the American and American conversation is a really good parallel for this, is like, is, it, is gun control American, right? It's, a, it's as complicated a question as that. It's more complicated than that. But, or is birth control American? Is our abortions American? You can just take it up to the next level, right? So that's, I think, what it, what's important to bring up. Yeah. Just trying to answer it. Okay. Elliot. Hello, I'm Elliot Pisano, and I teach Islam and Comparative Religion at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. And I just want to say briefly that I find this conversation heartening and makes me grateful to be part of a network of colleagues who can have reasonable, insightful, provocative conversations about these things. And especially thinking about my context of liberal arts college, it's heartening as well to think how I can you know, bring these conversations back into the classroom and not necessarily transform things in a radical way, but reaffirming, you know, things like importance of vocabulary and reframing the discourse and things we're talking about all the time. And so I want to thank you for all being part of this and for bringing it outside the classroom as well, which is, of course, a constant struggle. And I have a brief question, which has to do with terminology. And so my, my proposition is that I sometimes I'll refer to this group as the so-called Islamic State or the Islamic State. And my particular question is about using the term Daesh. And so A, in the classroom, and B, uh, for more public fora. And my concern is that when we use Daesh, going back to what Jenner was saying, it's like, you know, it's something like terrorism where it means like the bad guy violence that we don't like. It's, it's, it's so vague. And so I wonder... You know, if, if we use Daesh to signify the bad guys, are we obfuscating, you know, the complex political actors in the situation? You know, like when the United States military bombs Doctors Without Borders in Afghanistan, you know, it's just the United States military. Or, or when the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli Defense Force, um, you know, bombs Gaza, they're still the Israeli Defense Force. And so, yeah, that's my question. To what extent is... Uh, isolating the so-called Islamic State as a particular kind of bad guy, obfuscating the... Because I agree totally, this is... You know, these are deep moral questions about, you know, our lives and people we care about and whether some lives matter more than others. So, so yeah, so I'll just say it one more time succinctly. Um, so when, when, when we call Daesh Daesh to signify that they're a particular kind of bad guy, do we, do we take attention away from some of the other bad guys in the world that 
we really need to be have, having conversations about. I personally like what Keisha said earlier, which is that, I mean, look, none of these are actually good solutions because uh, if you call them Daesh, then it's, there's, a, there's a certain sense in which it's a little bit childish because we know that that really angers them. They really hate that. It's kind of like calling, it's like calling names almost. And, and you know, we, I mean, people don't have any problem with calling North Korea – what is North Korea? The Democratic Republic or something? Mm-hmm. Like when they have these obviously ridiculous names, but we still – I mean, we refer to them using those names and, you know, the Aryan nation or these sorts of things. I think Muslims and people who are sympathetic feel as though it's, it's a little bit um, – you know, because of the political situation, this is my reading of it. When you call them Islamic State, the fact that people are generally speaking so ignorant of Islam, and are in many in many cases so hostile to Islam, people feel a little bit reticent to give any kind of legitimacy to the idea and calling them the Caliphate. Or that's a, even a more interesting question. Like, should we call them the Caliphate or not? They call themselves the Caliphate, but no Muslim would call them that. That's an even more difficult question. Um, you know, I mean, my, my initial impulse is sort of like, I have no good answer. I mean, we basically are probably going to wind up using all of these in different periods of time, and probably scholars are not going to be the ones to decide what comes out on top in terms of what gets used. You know, I don't know who is. I mean, the government keeps pushing ISIL. They say ISIL, 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 but nobody repeats it. You know, so a person asks the president or Kerry about ISIS, they respond by saying ISIL. It's very weird. Have you noticed that? Uh, so I don't. I, there's probably no solution to this problem. It's just one of those things that maybe, maybe the best thing is just to not think about it too much. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I'd say two things, maybe maybe three. Um, the first is that Daesh is not going to catch on because it has an ein, right? I mean, you just can't do that in in an English speaking world. Um, the second thing, the, the compelling case I've seen for using that, which doesn't address the Ein problem, um, is that in the minds of the public talking about the Islamic State and repeating this idea of the Islamic State is, is really redrawing those connections between Islam and what's been done. And to me, that's the most compelling argument for not using it. Um, you know, there's an option that nobody's considering, um, which is cumbersome and ugly, which is to call them the Dal Islamiyah, right? Or the DI for short. You know, it's not DA like Dumbledore's army, um, but but it's it's something. I mean, we talk about um, uh, we talk about the Jamaat Islami in Pakistan, right? I mean, we talk about the Muslim Brotherhood in English, but but we talk and we call them Ikhwan sometimes. Uh, you know, what if we called it the Daul? I mean, it's stupid, it's silly, it's all a problem. But um, the other thing, the last thing, is if you're publishing with an outlet, they have an editorial policy and you don't get to choose, right? And if you're publishing on feminismandreligion.com, they're not going to want you to use ISIS because there are goddess religions who also blog there and it's really offensive to them to call it ISIS. Yeah, I don't think I have anything productive to add. I think Wikipedia will eventually make the call on it at some <laughs> point in history like they do on many things. So unfortunately, I think that's what will happen. You know, I could add something a little bit maybe mischievous here, which is that um, there's a certain part of me that likes the, it being called Islamic State because I am philosophically opposed to the idea 
that you can have such a thing as the, an Islamic nation state. So by all means, please devalue and you know, make this an unusable term so that people will you know, get rid of the idea. Uh, but you know, that's just one angle. <laughs> Hi, I'm Robert Morehouse, um, kind of independent adjuncting at Liberty at the moment. Uh, for what it's worth. But um, a recent presentation at said university presented Islam in a very interesting way. Uh, to, to be fair, or full disclosure, their focus was on uh, converting Muslims, honestly. Uh, so uh, the presentation was uh, that I think, if I can summarize it quickly, that there are extremists, moderates, and basically uninformed Muslims but then when the presentation continued, it went on to say that everything about why, how we could understand extremists and everything about how we might, I guess, easily convert the uninformed and skipped what they, what they labeled as the moderates, um, which, I mean, plays into part of the conversation you're talking about, about ideas of, of normativity and, and, and creating binaries. Um, and, but my specific question and the one I raised in that environment was, well, apart from these more extreme or vulnerable groups, you might call them, what about the highly informed uh, Muslim dialogue with Christianity, with uh, other religions, and one movement, I, specifically, the Common Word Initiative that seems to fall out. I mean, it's lost a lot of press, um, partly because of uh, these more violent things that I think is so positive and has so much currency if, if you'd share to, or care to comment or sh share how you think that might play into this dialogue. Well, I was involved from the very beginning um, with the Common Word Initiative. And the reason why it was, one reason why it was successful is because it had nothing to do with conversion. And in a sense, I mean, it's, it's interesting to note that the attempts by Christians to convert Muslims by and large has, has been a history of failure after failure. I mean, this is not... I mean, I mean, in a sense, you have to salute people who go into that field because it doesn't have a very good track record, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, but the Common Word Initiative succeeded precisely because it took the idea of missionizing and conversion off the table from the very beginning and said, uh, I'm not going to convert you, you're not going to convert me. At the end of this conversation, we are not going to have, we're not going to create a new religion. Um, and we are going to have a discussion on the basis of what we can actually zero in on that's common. And so many people already know, you know, you know that. And, uh, you know, the reason why it's by the I mean, it's, it's not in the press as much anymore. It's simply because the people who supported it have moved on to other things. You know, it's not as though, you know, the Jordanians and others are still struggling to move the message out and people aren't listening. It's just they've moved on, in a sense, to, to other things. But I think it's a very good model for, um, and Prince Ghazi, I think, really has to be congratulated for that fundamental insight, which is that he said, we're not going to take anything marginal. It's not going to be Sufis and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, people who are not r representing their kind of the, the main, the, the main center of their tradition. But we're going to take something which is just inarguably part of the tradition from, from everybody's point of view that people can agree on. A little s secret history here. He asked me to write that common word thing first. And I wrote something which was exactly the wrong thing. It was like my, my own personal thing about, oh, Islam is this and Christianity is that. He said, this is terrible. You can't, nobody's ever going to agree to this because it's just me speaking. But if you, if you just enable people to, because with, 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 with the dialogue between, I'm, I'll just cut it short here, the dialogue between Christianity and Islam, the people that you need to reach are so freaked out 
by the notion that the other side is going to contaminate them, that they don't, they don't even show up in the room. They don't even think that they, they're allowed to have that conversation. And so you have to set up the parameters of the debate in such a way that the other side has absolutely not a shred of doubt in their mind that you're coming in to uh, change them, to reform them, right, and to dismantle them. And if, you, and if you approach dialogue with that attitude, a lot of fruit can come out of that. The common word thing was amazing because it, it, what he thought initially would be just uh, things at high levels, all of a sudden conferences were sprouting up here and there, completely unconnected. It was completely unconnected. It was a very kind of grassroots type of thing. I don't know if that's answering questions that you had or there was something else that you needed to... Well, no, I, yes, it, it does in many ways. The, I just think that's a very good model you know, so many folks have asked, you know, what, what's a good representation of, of Islam and how this dialogue might move forward? Not to cut anyone else off, but I think it, it addresses the Common Word Initiative addresses one place where there's a very clear, there are clear messages that could be offered for what Muslims are trying to say about themselves. And, and it's a counter distinction to, the, you know, the obvious extremist, you know. Anyway, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Do you can I, anyone else? Yeah. yeah. I was just going to add something about another initiative that I was involved in that was actually started by the uh, Archbishop Ron Williams called Building Bridges, and it's now um, now underneath uh, Georgetown, uh, headed by Dan Madigan. And the idea with Building Bridges is you bring together Muslims and Christians that, that have all kind of agreed that there is no conversion that's going to take place, and you pick a theme, and the Christian scholars pip pick biblical verses and then the Muslim scholars pick Quranic verses around a central theme and then there's 15 or 20 of us that then break into groups of two to three or sorry three to four to then talk about these texts what do these texts mean to us and I think the uh, the additional benefit to building bridges is it also shows that within Muslims there's so much diversity about how to interpret these texts so if you're sitting in a group and you've got three Muslims and three Christians and you're conversing you start to see that you know the the interpretation of these texts is not not uniform um, and so it's another interesting model and usually every year they have a publication so if you just google building bridges georgetown uh every single year they they publish a book of the proceedings from that that get together and that I, model sorry go ahead. i was going to add one thing that was very a good decision on the part of rowan williams was that aside from the public panels the private discussion that took place between the scholars was never publicized. There was no statement. There was no nothing. Mm -hmm. It was just completely shut off. And that, I can assure you, completely changes the dynamic. And an actual exchange can take place. People feel safe. And I really um, encourage people, when you're having interfaith or any kind of meetings of this kind, to not insist that it either, number one, be public, or number two, that private conversations, then they have to formulate some kind of summary statement at the end of it of common principles or something like that, because that just, it really destroys it. If it's worthwhile to have an exchange of views, it's worthwhile to put people in a room together just for the sake of that. That really does accomplish something. And that model sounds a lot like scriptural reasoning, which is sort of interfaith and also intrafaith as well, um, that model of studying text together. And I'd also just say that it's important when, when um, one thing to take into consideration, of course, th that's important that we don't always take into consideration is gender balance at, with these statements and these, uh, these events and panels. So just to bring that up and make sure that Muslim women's voices and Muslim feminist voices are included because they're an important part of the Islamic tradition. Uh, your question, you're up next. Gabriel Morgan, Lutheran Theological Seminary of Philadelphia. 
Uh, I saw this week a New York Times opinion article uh, recirculated an argument that I've seen many times uh, over the past maybe 10 years even, uh, criticizing U.S. foreign policy in terms of its uh, affiliation with and working with Saudi Arabia as being the sort of origin of Wahhabism as an interpretation of Islam that has been one of many precipitating factors for the formation of ISIS or Daesh. I just wonder if you could speak to that. Do you think that that argument is correct or not, or where does it go wrong? I wouldn't really know where to start with that one. Um, so I, in terms of the connection between the two, um, at least the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia, who's understood to be kind of the, the, the main um, head honcho for Wahhabi thought currently, has um, actively denounced ISIS. Um, what's happening behind the doors, that's a completely different question. So the relationship between Qatar, where I live, um, Saudi Arabia and ISIS and the U.S., that is something that uh, there's a lot of speculation about. I haven't seen um, hard evidence in terms of money that's going there and how the support is working, but I think most people do agree that there are back channels of money going through. Um, ideologically, I think it's important to differentiate Wahhabism from ISIS. Um, they're, they're both arguing for a type of purity within the religion, um, and so there are similarities, but I don't think simply because someone subscribes to the idea that you have to purify the faith and you have to go back to uh, traditional sources and they have kind of a narrow version of um, what is deemed, quote-unquote, Islamic or not, I don't think that necessarily then leads to ISIS. And so um, I think it's important to see the different manifestations of what broadly has been categorized as Salafism as being distinct, even if they do ideologically agree on, on certain elements. I'd only add that if you're looking for the origins of Wahhabism, you have to go back a little bit further and um, also perhaps cross the Atlantic and, and begin to think about Britain. I, I, I thought that article was uh, very helpful, not because I agreed with everything in it or the way that certain things were phrased, but it really brought to light something that I think Americans and American policymakers really need to come to grips with. It's true that... Um, uh, Salafis or Wahhabis, however you want to characterize them, have condemned ISIS. But that's, it's not only a question of whether or not they've given fatwas against what ISIS is doing or whether there's money going from the Gulf, from Kuwait and Qatar and other places like that to ISIS. I mean, that's, a, that's an important problem. But there's a broader issue which was brought out by that um, op-ed, which is that uh, Wahhabism, Salafism, this brand of Islam that comes out of Saudi Arabia, is not simply one voice in the conversation that Muslims are having. They are fueled by petrodollars. There is a huge propaganda machine, which was mentioned in the article, TV stations, newspapers, and so forth and so on. And not only that, and here I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from my own perspective, you might say, um, there is a fundamental lack of respect and acknowledgement of other forms of Islam that in the case of Wahhabi Salafism is especially virulent. So when they move into a space whether it's in Chechnya or it's in South Asia or it's a mosque or an MSA in the United States, there is an inability to abide the existence of other forms of Islam. And so part of what it means to be a Wahhabi, a Salafi, is to get rid of the other forms of Islam that are around. This is not universally characteristic of Islam. It's not the way that Sunni Islam traditionally has operated, and it's not the way that most Muslims I know who are not Wahhabi operate when they go to a mosque. But when these types of people whether it's in the media realm, whether it's in publishing, that's particularly pernicious. Um, enter into a space, 
they, the, one of the first things that they do, in a sense the first thing that they do, is to start getting rid of the other forms of Islam that are there. Fine. Now, when that happens, and you do it over decades, decades and decades and decades of this, especially in the Arab world, you then eliminate, it's sort of like a deforestation. You know, when you cut down all the trees in a place, then it's susceptible to mudslides, to use a, you know, a geological metaphor. So what has happened is that Wahhabism isn't necessarily the cause of ISIS. It's not some kind of linear progression. But the spread of Wahhabism, by the way, under the very protective wing of the United States and, 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 and in a sense promoted by the United States as, an, as, an, as a counterweight to things like Arab nationalism and other forces, we've played a big part in spreading Wahhabism in the Islamic world, and we've created a religious and intellectual scholarly environment in the Islamic world where the answers, the responses, the institutions that would be there ordinarily to oppose these kind of extreme tekfiri ideologies just aren't there. They've been, it's, not, it's not a neutral market, right? We have engaged systematically over decades in, uh, in severe market distortion, you might say, on the part of the Saudis and the Wahhabis throughout the Islamic world. And you can see it almost play out in real time when you follow what happened in Chechnya, for example. There was a certain point at which the Saudis entered in, and the Russians knew this. Why? Because what did they start calling them? They called them Wahhabis, not the Chechens. Right? When, they, when, when this money started to pour in. So I think Americans, long term, need to really condition, and here's my foreign policy prescription for the day, we need to change our strategy when it comes to the Gulf countries, and we need to say, if we're going to maintain the relationship that we have with you, it's going to be predicated on you keeping your brand of religion in your own countries. And it's going to happen in Egypt, right? Because now it's gone in. What's going to happen to traditional, what I call traditional Islam in Egypt in 20 years? It's going to go the way of uh, Syria. So it's, that, that's a big problem. I mean, I, I think that article by Kamal Dawood is really, really excellent. And one of the things that I thought that was most important about that article, in addition to talking about the mother and father of ISIS, it was that he talks, says the mother of ISIS is the, is the Iraq war, the illegal war in Iraq. And when he talks about Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia, he talks about American, American support of this, of, of, of this regime. So it really does place the responsibility centrally on Americans to really take a hard look at themselves and think about what it is that they're doing and what their culpability is. And so I thought for that reason also it was a really excellent article. Okay, so our last question, and then we'll wrap up. Hi, uh, Omar Farahat, Columbia University. Um, this is related to the point uh, you just made about um, U.S. policy uh, in, in the region. Um, and I was thinking throughout the discussion um, to what extent any or all of you uh, would find it fruitful to engage with similar conversations in the Arab or Muslim world or both on whether ISIS is or is not Islamic. Because you see in the, you know, in the past um, several years, you see certain trends like, you know, um, middle-class Muslims saying this is not the true uh, this is not the true Islam. The true Islam is the Islam we practice. It's the um, you know peaceful, uh, individual, subjective kind of Islam that you practice at home. And then you see the um, secularist, uh, progressive, you know, so, you know self-proclaimed progressive politicians who want to uphold you know the um, the regime in which you know, Arab nationalist secularist uh, regimes are predominant to say that this is a problem with Islam, this is 
by which they mean this is a problem uh, with Islamism. This is the problem with political Islam that we have that ISIS is only um, sort of you know the Muslim Brotherhood on steroids or something of that sort. Um, and then you have you know you have the people who uh, situate themselves as moderate Islamists like the Muslim Brotherhood who say, well you close the door for the conversation by supporting those, uh, you know, by supporting Saudi Arabia, by supporting Bashar, by, support, by supporting Sisi, and you're calling for, you know, a secularist, progressive, uh, religious revolution, a top-down revolution from above, so you're going to get ISIS because, you know, you, you didn't accept us, so here is, here is what you get. So to what extent do you think, think about these issues as a problem of, a crisis in uh, trying to figure out the place of Islam in politics and sort of having a regional political uh, landscape that makes the conversation dif very difficult in the first place. To what extent do you think this is something we, sh we should be thinking about? Thank you. It's okay. I mean, I'll take a stab at that. I mean, it's a I mean you brought up a lot of issues. Um, <laughs> I have to be, I mean, as, as a scholar, as an American, as a Muslim living in this country, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I think less and less about what Arabs and others should do uh, because I know that I don't have a lot of influence and power over it, or nor do I have a lot of influence and power over the people who do have the power to do something, you might say, and to influence. And so I would, I would make a general comment about the way that we approach, you know, that, that world. And I would say as scholars, we need to be honest uh, and, and, and that is that what we say about what we want in the Arab world, if we're talking about that, is not the same thing as what we want and, and the priorities that we're governed by. And I really, again, I want to emphasize, we have to really re-examine two fundamental priorities that we have in, in, in that region, which is that, number one, our relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf monarchies in general and, and the way that we're going to prioritize our, our control of the energy resources on the one hand, and secondly, the way in which our domestic politics related to Israel are going to determine policy in that region as well. And until and unless those two basic pillars of American foreign policy in that region are reassessed and modified and recalibrated, you can expect more of the same. This is my own view. Nothing is going to change so long as you have these two absolutes which are simply unchanging and unchangeable. That is to say, our relationship with Saudi Arabia and our relationship with Israel. Those are not going to be eliminated, but we have to at least entertain the idea that they can be recalibrated or somehow shifted in a way that we can express some kind of wisdom that we don't keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's, I really i am brokenhearted as an American that after everything that's happened that we did the same thing in Egypt that we've done over and over and over again and we did it in front of everybody, right in front of their faces um, while claiming democracy the whole time. And these things keep happening and, you know, people don't forget. You know, and so we have to, instead of asking what should Arabs do and what should the Arab conversations, we should ask what are we going to do differently in this country and what are we going to, and, and you can start with those two. And I think if you change those, there'll be a big effect, not today, but in 10, 15 years. I would echo what John Ayer said about um, being focused on, as Americans, how do we think about U.S. foreign policy, but also how do we think about American history, how do we think about the American present, 
far beyond the question of Islam and Muslims, but much broader questions about race, much broader questions about religion, uh, and, and much broader questions about how we think about these things in a complicated, nobody said it yet, yet today, <laughs> intersectional fashion. Um, and as scholars, we sometimes have to simplify things in particular ways when we speak to journalists, when we speak to the public, if we speak to foreign policymakers. And the simpler we can make it without losing the really essential pieces of the nuance while keeping the framing we need to keep, the more likely it is that it will transfer into their translation of our ideas. Um, at the same time, I think we have to, as scholars, continue um, thinking in deeper and richer ways about these interconnections in our own work and keep challenging ourselves to understand these linkages um, keep testing them out in our classrooms and and keep uh, making these uh, the pursuit of these connections a theme in our writings on these topics. Um, I think uh, for me, I have a challenge because, and I keep saying this that you know i I teach in Doha, which which brings a range of difficulties that I think oftentimes teaching Islam in America doesn't necessarily bring. And that's the fact that you're teaching Islam to a classroom with usually 90 to 95% Muslims who are coming from various backgrounds. So I've had Chinese Muslims in my class. I've had Korean Muslims in my class. Of course, tons of Gulf uh, Muslims, um, kids from Egypt, kids from Pakistan. And what that does is it brings all of these different problems into the classroom. And so the individual that have lived through the Arab Spring, those, those young, impressionable teenagers are in the classroom. The individuals whose parents lived through the Hudud ordinances in Pakistan and have really staunch views about secularism are in the classroom. Um, and I think what it does for me is it poses a challenge, but it also poses a really interesting time to allow those, con those intersectional conversations to happen in the classroom. Um, to talk about whether it be U.S. history in the Middle East, whether it be Middle East, Middle East history itself, whether it be Islamic history, and then how are these all now related in the modern period? And what does that do when we're talking about religion, the public sphere, when we're talking about the Islamic State, when we're talking about the idea of um, uh, you know what is Islamic, what is not Islamic, all of these different questions. And I think the more we can open up the space for those conversations to happen, and most importantly for, for individuals who are holding different views to actually have those conversations with one another. Um, and I've seen this in the classroom where somebody who comes from a very staunch Wahhabi perspective who thinks I'm completely ludicrous, right? Anything that I say they automatically discount. By the end of the year, that conversation changes. Uh, so I think we have to understand the power of the classroom and the power of students to really talk to one another. Um, and so I think that's what I would say, just continuously finding spaces, whether it be in our classrooms, whether it be public lectures, whether it be other forums, to allow those conversations to happen. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion for hosting this event, and I want to thank our wonderful panelists for a really insightful conversation, and to our audience for being so patient and asking really thought-provoking questions. Thank you. <laughs>